When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. It's Friday morning. TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Frank. And more and more people I know are starting to plan their whole listening week around this hour. This is the hour where we pull it all out there. This is the hour where we leave it all out there on the field. This is the hour where you just do not know what you will hear. This is the hour that it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Our phone number is 1-800-848-WABC. You have questions about movies, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, cocktails. You need advice? I'm here. You want to know about my personal history, pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, restaurants, New York, the criminal justice system, aliens, the mob, hypothetical questions, my personal preferences, relationships, baseball, the culture at large, religion, or foreign policy. Now is the time. 800-848-9222. I can't promise you that I will be able to answer your question. But I can promise you that I will try to answer your question. Now, um, if to offer a little extra incentive, whoever comes up with the most interesting question in the eyes of our esteemed panel of staffers, Molly, Ryan, and Matt Blaze, will be gifted a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight baseball cap. So think out of the box. Think out of the box. Uh, we don't want uh, a lengthy diatribe on uh, whatever the issue of the day that you're worked up about, and at the end of the commentary you say, right? You know, th- that's not a question. We don't want a trivia question, um, who's, who played center field for the 39 Yankees, because either I know it or I don't, and I give you the answer, and the conversation sort of ends there. I know there were a lot of concerns last week that uh, I didn't spend nearly enough time talking about James K. Polk. I apologize uh, not only to the questioner, but to the Polk family. It's no reflection upon uh, my fondness for the memory and the legacy of James K. Polk, uh, the our first dark horse president, the Napoleon of the stump. Well, uh, we have a couple of people emailing questions as well. I'll, I'll, I do try to give preferential treatment to the callers, but I do. I will try and get to the emailers as well. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Pete in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank, do you have any favorite Spencer Tracy movies? And I have two suggestions for if you haven't seen them. Uh, well, the two that most immediately come to mind, I have a number of them, but the two that most immediately come to mind are It's a Mad Mad World and The Last Hurrah. If I had to pick... Um, while they're two very different films, I would pick uh, The Last Hurrah. I love, love that picture. Well, you got to try Captain's Courageous, 1937, 
or Northwest Passage 1940s adventure movie set in uh, French Indian War. Uh, I, I will check out both, Pete. And uh, if if my, you know, I start the show with sort of a thumbnail sketch of where I'd like it to go, and I may revisit both of those suggestions in the four o'clock hour with what I have planned for the four o'clock hour. Give me the titles again. Uh, Captain's Courageous is a fishing movie, and Northwest Passage is about the French Indian War. I will, uh, they're, they're, I'm adding both to my list. Thank you, Pete. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark. Hi, Frank. Hi. Frank, um, I want to ask you, why do you think that Mark Simone does not like you? Because you've mentioned that on the air a few times. Well, I, I honestly don't know. And the reasons that he's given uh, to people as to why he doesn't like me are so incredibly insignificant that you'd have to think, that uh, he's making things up. Uh, one of the things that, uh, or that meaning, uh, or that, that he has a disproportional response as to why um, w- w- these minor transgressions. Uh, f- one of the things that he's told people is that when I was producing his program, when he would fill in for Curtis or for Ron Kuby, is that I gave him information from Wikipedia that turned out to be inaccurate. Uh, now, that is... Not true. I did give him information from Wikipedia. The information was accurate, and it actually supported the argument that he was making on the radio. But even if that were true, that was back in 2006, 2007. You'd think he'd be over it at this point. Uh, also, he's claimed, he claimed that I, when I was producing the uh, Curtis and Kuby roast, which he was the roast master for, that I lied to get Jody Applegate to be one of the roasters. Now, if you think about that, it makes no sense. I mean, I like Jody Applegate, but I uh, I certainly wouldn't call her an incredibly close friend. Why would I lie to get her to be one of the roasters? And even if I did lie, she was one of the highlights of that roast because um, uh, Sean Hannity and others backed out at the last minute. There were very few roasters for that roast back in April of 2007. So I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I, someone that knows Mark well, has told me, and I'm a big fan of Mark as a as a radio personality. I like his show. I listen to it. Um, but someone that knows Mark well told me, and this is really what got me to stop obsessing over it. He told me that it's not a you issue. It's a Mark and everybody issue. I know a lot of other people, and I'm not going to mention their names. Some you would know, some you wouldn't know, that Mark has had issues with over the years. And um, for some reason, I tend to stick in his craw. I don't know why. Uh, Last time I saw him, uh, you know, once in a while he'll shake my hand when I see him at an event. But more often than not, he stays at the other side of the the room. I I really couldn't say, though. Is he uh, an easy guy to get along with? I always thought so. I mean, we used to be very good friends. And... um, and we used to not only work together well and socialize regularly, but then um, I, 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 when we weren't working together, we would still go out and socialize. So I always thought he was an easy guy to get along with. But um, the w- evidence that I've seen over the course of the last 15 years would seem to belie that. And uh, the stories that I've heard from other interactions that he's had with people uh, would seem to belie that. I, from what I can tell, if you're famous... Or wealthy, he's very easy to get along with. Uh, I see. All right. Thank you for the good question, Mark. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Greg is in New Jersey. Hello, Greg. Frank, I, I heard you were an intern on the uh, Curtis and Kuby show. That was one of my favorite shows to listen to because the animosity between those two guys was just outrageous. And when Curtis 
would say to Kubi, I'd like to go over there and just strangle you with that necktie of yours. How how much animosity, I mean, how much was stick and how, how much was like real true animosity between Curtis and Kubi? Um, well, there was, you know, it, it depended, honestly. Um, you know, keep in mind, they started working together in around uh, 1996 and then they stopped working together the first time um, in 2007. So that's uh, December of 2007. So that's about a, a decade. So over the course of a decade, as you have with any relationship, their relationship had a, a number of peaks and valleys. So at times they got along very well. At at times they got along very poorly. At other times they got along okay. Uh, that was, I'd say, the bulk of the time. Uh, but uh, so it would vary, I would say. At times uh, what you heard on the radio was very heated and very real. Other times they were just having fun. So it, it would vary. Uh, I, if you were to pinpoint one specific instance, um, at least if it was when the time that I was with them, I could tell you uh, how how real that was. But um, it, it it varied. Is there any one uh, episode that stuck out in your mind where you, you thought that maybe those two guys might go at it? <laughs> you know, that's funny. Um, I'm going to see if I can find the audio. If I can't find it this hour, I'll play it for you on um, on Monday. Um, it, it, there was one instance where, for some reason, John um, uh, Ron was going off on um, the people that were opposing Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And for some reason, this set Curtis off and he started, um, he, you know, he started just screaming at Ron and he was just really uh, red faced, red faced. And he uh, that was a very heated episode. I'm going to see if I could find the audio. If not now, I'll, I'll certainly have it by Monday because I made sure to pull that audio because it was just so jarring. Um, and uh, that was that was one episode that stands out in my mind. And uh, there was some animosity over the second trial of John Gotti Jr. when uh, Kubi had uh, testified and uh, Curtis didn't think that that was uh, he didn't think that his behavior in that trial was appropriate. I guess they didn't go out for drinks after the show. It, well, imagine. Curtis didn't drink back then. Uh, so Ron, Ron drank back then. He doesn't drink anymore. Uh, but uh, but he would, he, you know, George Weber and I, when I when he was the news anchor, he and I would go out for drinks. And Bruce Anderson and I would go out for drinks. And uh, a lot of the other people involved in the show would go out for drinks. Ron would come occasionally. Curtis would would rarely come unless it was a special event of some sort. Curtis is into working, even still. You know, Curtis is not really into socializing. Curtis is into working. And, and, and Kubi, he was also, uh, he, he uh, 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 had interest in the uh, Angels, too, right? as a lawyer, uh, represented him. The Hells Angels, not the Guardian yes. Angels. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's right. The hell, Yeah, he had a number of clients that were Hells Angels. That's true. Wow. That's true. Uh, good question, <laughs> right. though, Greg. Thanks. Yeah. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Did I hurt your feelings Monday morning? Uh, I don't know. What did you what, what, what did you say or do? I blasted you because you can never answer my questions. Uh, no. Since I don't remember our conversation Monday, I will say you did not hurt my feelings. Okay. Thank you All very right. much. 800-848-WABC. Jack is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jack. Hello, Frank. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, if you can have any job or position in the world, not not God or a prophet, something like not sci-fi either, uh, what would uh, which what would you pick and how would you use it? To any 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 if I could have any job in the world? Correct. Well, honestly, and uh, I'm, I'm not trying to dodge your question, th- this is it. This is all I've ever wanted to do. And uh, if I could do this job for life, uh, I, I would I would happily do it. Okay. Uh, now, if you're asking me, other than this job, I, I've, okay, uh, I've always wanted to job. be, uh, you know, I've always liked the idea of being borough president of Staten Island. That would certainly be a lot of fun. What would you try to accomplish being borough president of Staten Island? You know, I would. Um, you know, I, I think I would do some of the same things that Vito Fasella is going to do there. I would uh, try to reiterate uh, Staten Island being a uh, a community within a large city. I would try to make sure that Staten Island got its fair share. I would try to make sure we weren't picked on too much by City Hall. But I would try to, uh, almost like Oscar Goodman did when he was mayor of Las Vegas, bring a sense of fun uh, back to Borough Hall, sort of like Marty Markowitz did as the Brooklyn Borough President. I would sort of uh, be the kind of borough president for Staten Island that Marty Markowitz was on the one hand for Brooklyn and that Guy Molinari was uh, years ago, Jack. Thank you. 800 uh, let me say hello to Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hello, Frank. Uh, I was telling my young son about your uh, Garfield mug, and he is a presidential trivia expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he said, yeah, it's, it's Ohio. He said uh, a lot of presidents. He says Ohio is the second state that produced the most presidents. Uh, what was the first state? And what which five presidents came from Ohio? That's my question to you. Uh, so I, I'd have to think about it, but uh, there are uh, there are eight presidents from Ohio. You have uh, William Henry Harrison. You have Ulysses S. Grant. You have Rutherford B. Hayes. You have James Garfield. Uh, you have uh, Warren G. Harding. I'd have to look up the. Uh, I'd have to look up the others. And Virginia has also had eight, so they're both tied with eight. Uh, well, he told me that uh, Ohio was number two. I, the, also Taft, the McKinley. Oh right, Ohio. of course, yes. Uh, you have Taft, you have McKinley, and then I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting one other. I'd have to, uh, I'd have to look it up. But uh, yeah, he also went to the to the Garfield House, and he said it's a shame that he didn't get a chance to go to uh, all the other ones because that's what he likes to do. Uh, plus, he gets all these, like you do, little knickknacks from all the different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that is, uh, it, you know, it was a great experience. I really. I really loved going there. Yeah, so I'm just looking up this Ohio question. So you have Harrison, Grant, Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes. How could I forget uh, Rutherford B. Hayes? That's the one that I forgot. Harrison, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Harrison, McKinley, Taft, and Harding. Those are the eight from Ohio. But uh, it's a great trip. Uh, I enjoyed going to the Garfield residence when I was out there for the Republican convention. I said, I don't know if I'm, when I'm going to be in Ohio again. Let me at least visit James Garfield's house. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WAVC. Uh, Jennifer is in Boston. Jennifer, I'm, I don't want to discuss this much now I'm gonna, because I'm going to discuss this next hour. However, I don't know what you have planned tomorrow afternoon between 2 and 4 p.m., but I hope whatever you're planning on doing involves calling this radio station and challenging some of the uh, assertions that one of the hosts is going to be making for those two hours. And who might that be? <laughs> well, tune in at 2 a.m., I am going to tell you. Okay. 
Oh, you mean tomorrow night for Curtis? Uh, tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow afternoon. Listen at two a at, at two a.m. I'm going to. Uh... Oh, so at two p.m. tonight, you'll tell me about yes, tomorrow. Yes, exactly. Oh, right. Okay. So that's the intriguing thing you said earlier about the former. Um, yes, that's right. That's right. We'll 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 tune into that later. But just mark that on yeah. your calendar, uh, Jennifer, because you are you were the first person that I thought of when I learned of the new programming changes on Saturday. Oh, but I, but I'm sorry to digress. What was your question, Jennifer? No, that's good or bad. But here we go. Okay, um, a personal question, if that's okay. Anything. Okay, I was just wondering how you met the lovely Rachel. And at what point, like, how soon did you know she was someone special and perhaps your future wife? Oh, well, that's a great question. I met her. um, I was uh, uh, serving as a grand juror, and um, I was meeting a friend of mine for lunch uh, because the seat of of Staten Island government is an area called St. George. So I was a grand juror, and then around the corner, a friend of mine, my friend Emil Micah, worked at Borough Hall. Uh, And um, as I was waiting out front of Borough Hall... The former political reporter for the Staten Island Advance, Tom Robleski, he knocked on his window because he saw me waiting out there, and he waved mm-hmm. to me to, uh, you know, to come and uh, and come into his office. So I went in, and he's he's working. He says hello. We made small talk for a few minutes, and he has this woman working in his office as well. He says, "This is Rachel. She's going to be taking over for me when I." Um, when I moved to just being strictly an opinion columnist. So uh, I met her, and she said, oh, you know, it's funny. I just actually happened to call your dad for a story that I'm writing. Uh, My father was in the medical marijuana business at the time, and she was writing a story about marijuana. And um, Mm -hmm. and, that was it. And then once she took over this role as the full-time political reporter, um, I uh, then sent her a lengthy email describing all of the ways in which I thought that I could be sources for different stories that she was writing. She never used me as a source for any of her stories. Then I met her again uh, May 5th of uh, 2015, and I was on a date with another woman, and uh, she was working, and I went over and said hello, and uh, her response was, oh, nice to meet you. So she clearly did not remember meeting me oh, the first up. the first oh. time. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's something I remind her about on a regular basis. And then um, after that, uh, you know, we, we were friends, and if not friends, friendly. I would see her at different events, and I would keep trying to be a source for her for different articles that she was writing. And she would never use me as a source uh, for different articles that she was writing. And I think that she thought that my, um, my constant trying to charm her to get placed in her news articles was was my way of being flirtatious, and I guess at some point it did become that. But uh, she never ended up writing about me, but ultimately she did end up marrying me. So it was not a bad consolation prize. Well, that's a great story. That's a great story. Thanks well, for anyways, asking, Jennifer. I'm glad you're happy, and I'm glad you have that beautiful baby. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Me too. Right. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions in just a moment. 1-800-848-WABC. We are in the midst of an Ask Frank Anything hour. One open line right now, so use it wisely. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. I'm the man. Frank Marano. 
That's Jewel singing Foolish Games. I'm Frank Moreno. This is The Other Side of Midnight. An action-packed show still to come. Hey, is this a computer simulation? And when I say is this a computer simulation, I don't mean the show. Is this Earth? Is everything around us a computer simulation? And what if it is? What does the evidence suggest? We're going to explore that with David Chalmers uh, coming up in the 3 o'clock hour. And uh, coming up at 2.30, back by popular demand, Bryce Zabel will be here to talk about Aliens and the Beatles. Does it get any better than that? Aliens and the Beatles. I'm looking forward to that conversation very, very much. I'm going to try and alternate now. I'm going to go uh, email, phone call, email, phone call, uh, so that at least we get the email people in. we got one email here who asks the question, Who's that guy that says um, they're running a strange program, you all? That is uh, Wesley Snipes from the uh, from the movie New Jack City. And um, that is uh, that's a question we've gotten before. And um, that's that's, you know, a fair question. That's the top of the hour. Strange program. y'all. That's Wesley Snipes in New Jack City. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two two. Gary is in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. Uh, purely hypothetical situation. If management approached you and said, "Frank, we're going to offer you any time slot that you want. You pick it." What would you do? I would pick this one only with an extra hour. Um, you know, either either whether it's midnight or whether it's five. I would love to have a fifth hour of this show, but it would still be this one. To me, there's not a show like uh, there's not a, a time a, a time slot in radio like overnight radio yeah i didn't expect that answer well what would what, what would you what would you expect what were you expecting well what i expected i would go with the one that has the big draw and i think the way i've always considered uh your hours the grave the graveyard shift they are they are but what you know what i, I feel a kindred spirit I feel I feel a kinship with people that are up right now, whether because they're partying or because they have insomnia or because they're working. And these are my people. These are my night people are the people awake right now. The people that listen casually for 10, 15 minutes in the radio in the morning as they're getting ready to go out to school or work, they're they're fine. They're fine. They're normal, everyday people. I'm an oddball, and I like to I like to communicate with other oddballs. And uh, these are my people. This is my fraternity. Wouldn't trade this for anything. 800-848-WABC. Uh, that's 800-848-9222. So in, in response to what the caller asked about Curtis and Kuby, this is a piece of audio from 2005 or 2006, and it begins with George Weber uh, introducing a piece of, on the U.N. General Assembly by Jim Smith, and then Curtis and Ron commenting on the piece. This is an example of a moment that I can assure you was not shtick, that was all too real. Listen to this. From that protest. Thousands pack a plaza across from the U.N. Shoulder to shoulder, they stood in solidarity with Israel. New York Governor George Pataki among the many speakers. We must stand with the free, independent people of Israel. 
as they are on the front lines. And those in this massive crowd agree, like Solomon Kanicki, who says it's all about the struggle for freedom for all people. So it's not only Israel's problem, it's America's problem, and it's not just a Jewish problem, it's everyone's problem. And they want world leaders, especially the Iranian president, to know terrorism and violence will not be tolerated. Outside the U.N., Jim Smith, WABC News. And I was there with Rabbi Joe Potashnik, and I was the last speaker, and I focused all of my anger on Mahmoud Eichmann Ajad, the Holocaust denier and president of Iran who had spoke the day before. Well, you look at the New York Times today. Mahmoud Eichmann Ajad appeared before two dozen members of the Council on Foreign Relations last night. He spent 40 minutes questioning the evidence that the Holocaust ever happened. He said killings, if those killings had happened at all. Oh, boy. In World War II, about 60 million people were killed, he said at one point, when pressed again on his refusal to accept that the Holocaust happened. Two million were military. Why is so much prominence given to a small portion of those 60 million? This guy is a Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite. If you lived in Israel and you knew he had that nuclear weapon, you know doggone well he would definitely make a way to get that weapon Mm -hmm. right at Tel Aviv. Although it still doesn't quite, I mean, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's anti-Semitism still doesn't quite explain to me why the Israelis are justified in what they've done to the Palestinians and what they did in Lebanon, by the way. denial, Ron. Right, that's that's what's important. denial. You are a Jew. The Palestinians. How dare you sit here and offer a a Holocaust denial. You sound like a nut. You're crazy. So that was one of those moments that was really, really very tense. And that music that you hear towards the end, Spirit in the Sky, that was only because Paul Harvey, that was his opening theme, and he was coming up at 8.30. And that was one of the things in the show, the format of that show at the time that was a hard break, meaning Paul Harvey starts playing at 8.30 whether we're done with the show or not. A lot of the other breaks are what they call floating breaks. And uh, that uh, that um, had had we not had to break for Paul Harvey, I shudder to think at what might have happened next because the look on both of their faces was was indicative of n- sheer contempt at that moment. Now, uh, keep in mind, after they broke up in uh, 2007, they then reunited in January of 2014 and did the show together for another three years. So the, the, their relationship, like many relationships, had their series of peaks and valleys. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Newark. Hello, Mark. Hello. Thank you. Well, if I, I have a strange question. You wake up one day, the morning, and you realize that you are black and you live in a black neighborhood. What are you going to do? Are you going to be happy, mad? What are you going to do? Well, if I'm black? Yes. If I'm black and woke up in a black neighborhood? No, you wake up then one day in the morning and you realize that you are black and you live in a black neighborhood. Uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds almost like uh, the the the, uh, the premise of the movie Trading Places. I mean, uh, again, I, uh, I, I wouldn't spend much time uh, thinking about, about it one way or another. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about myself being white. I would go about doing everything that I do exactly as I do it, uh, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever I am, you know, I am. Uh, I'm like Popeye, right? 800-848-WABC. There's an email question here. 
Uh, this is from Robert or Bob. Or Bob. Uh, Frank, you always have an unbelievable amount of energy, patience, and clear-headedness for most subjects for an overnight show. How much sleep do you really get, and what is an average day like for Frank Morano? Really, how do you fit all the preparation reading to prepare every day? Uh, FYI, the show only continues to get better. Well, that's nice, Bob. Um, so honestly, my schedule has changed tremendously since uh, having a child. My old schedule was when I'd get home, I would go to sleep, and I would try. My goal would be to try to stay awake until 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock if I had nothing scheduled. Sometimes you have to get up because you have something scheduled. Now I get home around 6.30 or 7 most days. Fridays are an exception, and and Sunday into Monday are an exception. And because my wife has been up all night with this screaming guy, I try and take Carmine for a few hours to look after him, and I'll stay up with him. On the off chance that he sleeps a little bit, I'll I'll sleep a little bit. And then instead of getting to bed at 7 or 7.30, I get to bed maybe 10, sometimes 10.30. And then uh, if I have nothing pressing in the middle of the day, I stay asleep until maybe 2, 2.30. Today I slept later. Today I slept until around uh, quarter after 3. So I would say I get a good five hours, five and a half hours during the day. And then if I can, I try and get another nap a little bit later. And then on the weekends I get a, a bit more. But my weekend schedule is pretty erratic. Who knows, though? After Hopefully after Carmine is in a more established sleep situation, maybe uh, that sleep regularity will be, you know, maybe that sleep will be a little bit more regular. Uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Chris in Mount Vernon. Hey, Frank. Uh, I was just wondering, have you ever gotten pulled over and, you know, and uh, I gotten out of a ticket because the... The cop recognized you. Because the cop... No, I've gotten pulled over many times, and I'm trying to think if I've ever gotten out of a ticket because the cop recognized me. I don't think so. Sometimes I have um, I have made quick use of, uh, of a PBA card, but I'm trying to think. No one's... I don't think anyone's ever said, oh, you're Frank Morano from radio or TV or, uh, or anywhere else, and, oh, you know, go ahead, have a good day. Uh, there have been a number of times when I've run into police that have recognized me, but not in the course of uh, of pulling me over. No, I don't think I have gotten out of a ticket because okay. of uh, being Frank Morano. If anything, I would probably be more likely to get a ticket because of being Frank Morano. What? I wasn't going to give you a ticket. I was going to give you a warning, but I heard the ridiculous things you said on air. So you, you got a ticket now. All right, got an email here from Tom. Based on your experiences in both cities, how would you describe the differences between Atlantic City and Las Vegas? Um, what do you like better about Atlantic City? What do you like better about Vegas? What's the best, worst thing about Vegas? What's the best, worst thing about Atlantic City? Well, um, it's sort of an unfair comparison because I go to Las Vegas maybe once every five years for a few days. Atlantic City, uh, not recently, but generally I try to get to Atlantic City once a month. Atlantic City I consider my home. Right. Uh, and it, other than New York, it's the city that I know the best. So it's a totally different experience. It would be like um, visiting uh, your great uncle's house that you've been to eight times in your whole life uh, versus who lives far away in the Pocono somewhere versus visiting your your own house. I mean, it, it's, it's such a such a difference. Um, the biggest differences between the two cities, Atlantic City and Vegas, are size and grandeur. Atlantic City is the size of a small town. It's only 48 blocks. Las Vegas is mammoth. It is huge. Uh, Atlantic City probably has a population of thirty or 40,000. 
Las Vegas has a substantially larger population, and it's also very spread out. I remember when I visited Atlantic, uh, Las Vegas for in 2016, one of the first times that I'd been there as an adult in recent years. I, um, or no, not 2016, 2012, 2012 I was there with Roger Stone for the uh, Libertarian Convention. I thought that Vegas was going to be like Atlantic City and that you could go anywhere for a $13 cab, cab ride. Boy, was I wrong. I, um, I got in a cab. I said, oh, I'm going here. And I just watched this meter go up and up and up, $70, $80. Whoa, that's not, I'm not in Atlantic City anymore, Toto. Uh, the other difference uh, is the heat. I mean, Vegas is always hot, and it's, uh, it, it can be sometimes blisteringly hot. Atlantic City, you're on the beach. You have, there's always the water there. So if it gets to ever a boiling point, as maybe it would in the dog days of summer, you go onto the beach and you go into the water. Las Vegas doesn't have a beach. Uh, because Las Vegas is so much bigger, they get bigger acts. They get, for the most part, uh, bigger entertainers. Yeah. Britney Spears is not performing in Atlantic City anytime soon. Uh, so it's a much bigger experience overall, uh, Las Vegas. What I like better about Atlantic City is it really does feel like it's possible to know everybody. Uh, you can go to, uh, you know, all the best casinos, all the best bars, and really get to know everybody like it's a small town. Vegas does have that to some extent, but it seems like it's much more difficult to get to know all the key uh, market makers. Uh, what do I like better about Vegas? I guess, I think I just answered that. Is There's a lot more options. Instead of nine casinos, there's um, hundreds of casino hotels. Hundreds. You can't visit them all in one trip. It's, it's impossible. I don't know that anybody's able to do it. You can visit all the Atlantic City casinos in one day. Uh, the best thing about Vegas, I would say, is Old Vegas. I like Fremont Street. I like Old Vegas as it was years ago. Uh, people, uh, you know, things like the Mob Museum, that whole area. I like it. Uh, the worst thing about Vegas, uh, what is the worst thing about Vegas? I would say Vegas in the la in the course of the last 20 years has become very uh, commercialized. It has become not very corporate, very cold, not homey at all. And a lot of the aspects of old Vegas that I like have diminished. The best thing about Atlantic City is um, is I'm going to say the food. I think there's some of the best restaurants in the world there. And uh, the worst thing about Atlantic City is that uh, you have to pay to park just about everywhere. everywhere. Every casino you go to, you have to pay $5 to park minimum. Uh, there was one place that didn't charge you for parking, the Atlantic Club. That's closed. So uh, that's the worst thing, in my view. 800-848-9222. Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. I have a history question for you. It's kind of a two-parter in one. The question is, how many U.S. presidents claim ancestry to this particular country? Which particular country? That's a two-parter question. How many presidents? All right, so i got to tell you, I'm so not in the mood for trivia questions. And, again, I began the show by saying, please don't ask trivia questions. Well, what are you asking me for? And, and uh, you have continued to disregard my uh, request. I, I have no idea. I feel like I need a decoder ring to figure out what the question is. Uh, so chances are you won't like the answer. 800-848-9222. Michael is in Virginia Beach. Hello, Michael. Uh, hello, Frank. Uh, Frank, uh, in the last hour, uh, your colleague, uh, Dominic Carter, asked uh, a question for his uh, town meeting, 
which I think required a universal truth of life answer. And uh, none of his callers. So what's your question, uh, Michael, without the wind up? What's your question? Well, uh, the, the question is, you described yourself some months ago as being a minister of the Universal Truth of Life Church. And I'm wondering, uh, this is my question, is this a universal truth of life that Black Lives Matter has done a lot less to harm black people than uh, charities that are smuggling in illegal aliens to take jobs away from black So uh, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Nate is in Union, New Jersey. Hello, Nate. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, have you heard of the, the new movie that the Daily Wire came out with? Uh, yeah, I, just re- I, I don't remember the name of it, but I, I read about it yesterday for the first oh. time. Yes. Yeah, you plan on watching it? Yeah, I'll watch it, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of nice that uh, not just Hollywood's doing stuff now. Absolutely. Uh, that's what been one of the frustrating things, and we'll talk a little bit about movies later on, is that there does seem to be one particular view that's dominating film uh, production out of Hollywood, and that's that's a shame uh, that you really you want a diverse uh, point of view on different things. Uh, Ellen emails, hi, Frank, at times you've had a panel of guests to discuss different, to discuss issues. If you could have a dream panel of five guests from history, whom would you choose and what would you like to ask them? Well, I, I would love a little bit more time to answer that question, but if I'm uh, spitballing here, I ha- I would want to pick a diverse panel. Okay. Uh, so of uh, people that have different expertise in different areas. So obviously I got to get Theodore Roosevelt in there because he knows a little bit about everything. You could talk to him about policing. You could talk to him about hunting, conservation, traveling. You could talk to him about the courts, democracy, whatever. So I put Theodore Roosevelt in there. I would put uh, Douglas Adams in there, one of my favorite authors, just because he's uh, so funny. I would put, um, uh, you know, I would say I would put Jesus in there, but I feel like Jesus would be maybe a disappointing radio guest. I feel like he'd answer everything in parables and riddles. And when you have four or five other people, uh, who, who wants to keep hearing Jesus's riddles? I mean, it's great to reflect upon, great to pray, pray upon. Is it the best talk radio? I don't know. So I'm not putting Jesus in there. Um, I'd put, um, I might put Winston Churchill in there. You could talk to him about cigars. You could talk to him about politics. You could talk to him about switching parties. You could talk to him about, uh, martinis, uh, things of that nature. So we got Churchill, we got Theodore Roosevelt. We have Douglas Adams. Uh, we have, uh, I'm trying to think who else throughout history would be an interesting radio guest. I'm going to put Walter Winchell in there because Walter Winchell was such a, a great radio personality in his own right. And uh, I think he would add a lot. And, you know, he's of a different era. And then uh, number five, I'm going to say uh, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. Certainly he knows all about sports. He can answer a lot of sports questions. He and uh, Churchill could uh, deal with some cigar questions together. Uh, so that would be my five. Babe Ruth, Winston Churchill, Theodore Roosevelt, Douglas Adams, and uh, what was the other one that I uh, that that I that I mentioned? I don't remember, but those would be my five. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Joe is in Brooklyn. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi. I'm curious what we do 
you wake up in the morning and it starts raining little red cherry tomatoes. <laughs> it starts raining little red. First of all, I think Joe was on already. It starts raining little red cherry tomatoes. I guess I would go out with a bucket and collect as many as I can in the hopes of making a robust uh, tomato salad, right? Why? Ted is in Clark. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Uh, question, what are your favorite movie remakes? Like, maybe top four or five. Uh, okay, my top four or five. Um, well, you know, so there are some films that are remakes that I haven't seen the original version of. Um, you know, like like The Departed, for instance. That was a remake. I never saw the original version of that film. Uh, a film like uh, Cape Fear. I never saw the uh, the original version of uh, of that film. But that's supposedly uh, supposed to be a very good uh, a very good remake. I'm gonna say um, I'm gonna say Scarface. Uh, even though Scarface, I think as a film is overrated. As far as remakes go. Uh, that is, I think, better than the original. I'm going to say, and I, even though I love the original, I'm going to say True Grit. Uh, the the remake of True Grit was a much better film than the original John Wayne version, and I'm a John Wayne fan. Uh, the Birdcage, which was a remake of La Caja Foal, uh, that might be one of the funniest movies of uh, of all time uh, from my perspective. And um, let's see, can I pick one more? Um I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. Th- those are the ones that most immediately come to mind. What about you think of the invasion of bias snatchers? You know, I, I was I, I, that is one of the ones that I was thinking of. Um, I like the original. I think I like the original better. But uh, they're both very good. And as uh, the 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 um the blob, same thing. Uh, I like both the original version and the remake. They're both very good. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Charlie is in Westchester. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. I wanted to ask you, how long, how many years did you spend producing shows, and were they always of a talk format? Uh, Yes, they were uh, of a talk format. The only thing that was uh, a little different was when I was producer of Mark Simone's Saturday Night Oldies show. That was a hybrid of talk and music, but uh, I guess... Uh, it was from uh, 2004, 2005 until 2020. So I guess about 15 years. Thank you. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Frank is in New Jersey. Hello, Frank. Hi, Frank. How you doing? Uh, I have two questions for you. The sure. first one is, with March Fest approaching, do you know why we pushed the clocks ahead in March and pushed them back an hour in November? They were talking for a while about getting rid of it, and I find it very annoying. Uh, it's the worst. I have been a crusader on this issue for a long time, and we finally, this may finally be the year that we get to it. Marco Rubio has been a real leader on this issue, as have a number of people. And I've actually encouraged Andrew Giuliani to make this a big part of his campaign for governor. The uh, the sticking point at this point appears to be this. At, at the moment, they allow states to opt out of daylight saving time. They can observe standard time all year long as Arizona does, as Hawaii does. However, right. there's a lot of states that don't want permanent standard time. 
They want permanent daylight saving time. And currently, the federal legislation doesn't allow states to do that. So in, in t- it almost happened last year, and I thought with COVID we might have gotten right. it, but it didn't. Uh, but I'm still optimistic that we may happen. Everybody realizes how stupid it is and how unnecessary it is and, quite frankly, how dangerous it is. And as we get closer to... Uh, to, to changing the clocks in March. We'll do a whole segment on this uh, as well. 800-848-WABC. Mike writes, Hello, Frank. Let me ask you this. The elevator you're riding in stops. The doors open. And a beautiful, famous, modern-day actress gets in. The car starts to move, then suddenly stops. For the next hour, you two are stuck. Who would you like to be stuck with, and what would you talk to her about other than your escape? Thanks, Mike. Out. You know, I'm the worst with this because I really don't know almost any modern-day actresses. I, I There's only a handful that I recognize. However, there's two that come to mind. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, because I really think she's just such a terrific actress, and I'd love to talk to her about her craft. And the other is uh, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, for some of the same reasons. I think she's a great actress. But also she's been very active in political reform issues, issues like ranked choice voting. So I would uh, love to talk to her for an hour or two about ranked choice voting and about political reform. And I would try to get her on board with some other political reform initiatives like term limits, like uh, proportional representation, like nonpartisan elections, like initiative and referendum. Uh, And I think given her advocacy for ranked choice voting, I think she'd be amenable to that. Jeff is in Elmont. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank, good morning. I know you're a Staten Island guy. I wanted to ask you a question. Did you know that Frank Cowley was headed against, you know, crime family before he was killed in 2019? Because he was never in the news. Yes. Well, um, he wasn't in the papers like a like, say, a John Gotti or a Peter Gotti even was. But, uh, yes, it was known in law enforcement circles and mob circles that he was uh, that he was the boss of the Gambino crime family. And if you read Jerry Capisi's Gangland News, he had reported that several times that Frank Cali was the uh, boss of the Gambino crime family, at least in America. Apparently, there's also an Italian version of the Gambino crime family, which is headed by someone else. All right, Frank, I was just curious. But, Frank, before we go, just one more quick question. How's Carmine been sleeping? Uh, not great. He has been. He gets up about every hour and a half to two hours, even if he's not hungry. And uh, apparently he just wants to be held. So he's about two and a half months old. I think our plan is once he's four months old, we're going to just let him uh, what they call sleep train, just uh, sit there and cry until he falls asleep. So as of now, he gets up about two, two and a half hours to either sleep, to either want to be fed, to be changed, or just to be held. Uh, he doesn't like sleeping on his back in the bassinet, but uh, they say that's what you're supposed to do now. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. As we wind down the Ask Frank Anything hour, let's try and squeeze in a couple more calls here before we give our august panel of Molly, Matt, and Ryan an opportunity to pick who will be the lucky recipient of a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight baseball cap. Let's say hello to Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Mike? Hey, Frank. How you doing? Well, uh, I'd say about a 9 out of 10. 
question is what do I think so your question is what do I think of that idea to give politicians salaries a percentage of the tax revenue coming from their their constituents if if they're uh, yeah they're underrepresenting their yeah, I, districts, they I, I don't less money. I don't like the idea uh, because, one, I think it would incentivize politicians to try to raise taxes on their own constituents rather than the other way around. And two, I think it would result in uh, areas that don't produce a lot of tax revenue, which tend to be on the lower economic stratosphere, uh, getting having much poorly paid elected officials. And those are often cities that need the most help. So, no, I don't like that idea. Mark is in New Haven. Hello. Hey, Frank. Glad to hear Russell and the baby are doing well. Thank you. Uh, two quick questions. One is who decides about station promotion announcements, promoting, promoting your show? Because even though the way you tease the next couple of segments, the station promotion announcements teasing your show make it sound like you're Art Bell. And I think you're much more varied and interesting than Art Bell ever was. And I go all the way back to Herb Jepko and Larry King, but uh, your, your show is terrific, and, and I don't know who makes that decision. And then the other question is, do you want a short joke that's too long for 15 seconds of fame? All right, well, uh, yeah, I guess in terms of uh, promotions, the I mean, I think there are a number of people that can uh, make promotional decisions. Our program director, Matt Meany, our president, Chad Lopez, uh, we have a social media promotion department. Uh, Doug Kilzer is involved there. And then ultimately, uh, ultimately, the big questions about promotions are uh, decided by our owner, uh, John Katsimatidis. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Manhattan. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. About three months back, I called you up and I asked you if there were any movies, uh, science fiction movies coming out that you were looking forward to seeing. Yeah. And the one movie you listed was the new Matrix movie. I, 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 I haven't seen it yet. It's actually, uh, I'm looking forward at 3.30 to talking about the Matrix with David Chalmers, and I'm going to ask if he's seen it. Uh, so far, the reviews have been pretty lukewarm, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to see it anyway because I like the franchise and I love the idea. Okay. Thank, thanks, Paul. 800 848 Nine two two two. All right, are we going to get through all these? We might. Dara is in Saratoga. Hello, Dara. Hi, Frank. So I heard about your new podcast, and I think visiting uh, prisoners, inmates, is a unique experience. So I want to know what takeaways or reflections you've had visiting an inmate. Uh, that's a good question. There are many, right? So uh, I've visited inmates at different prisons. I visited print, uh, inmates at the MDC in Brooklyn, the MCC in Manhattan, and uh, at Butner uh, in, in Butner, North Carolina. And different prisons have a different experience. Uh, the one thing that um, they have in common is, you know, all the security area, the security protocols you go through, which in some cases are very bizarre. For instance, if you visit the MDC or the MCC. You can't wear green or khaki pants uh, because that's too similar to the colors that of the prison uniform. That's a little unusual. Uh, you're also uh, very conscious of being watched by uh, 
by the uh, the the uh, the guards or the correction officers, and you're never really at ease. Uh, you never really get the sense that things. Maybe it's different now with COVID protocols, but you don't really get the sense that anything is too clean there as well. So you're very conscious of touching anything because there's a lot of germs, and you're also very conscious of the fact that you're on a very specific. Uh, time level. So you try to be very judicious with your conversation because the clock is ticking. Uh, good questions all. Uh, do I have time for one more? All right. Jack in Brooklyn, very quickly, if you can. Yeah, two questions. Number one, if if you can redo anything in your life and go back and redo it, what would it be? And also, if you can choose to be anybody other than yourself, who would it be? Well, the the answer to the second question is easy. It's William Shatner. As far as the redo of any portion of my life, that I don't know. Um, I, I I don't I don't you know the, all these the experiences probably mistreating my wife or something or uh, being uh, being a bad husband or boyfriend uh, to her or to someone else over the years. Probably probably something like that. I, I remember uh, a number of instances she was upset, and if I could spare her being upset, I would certainly do so. Best question, Matt Blaze. Goes to Greg in New Jersey, which is the question about Curtis and Kuby. All right, Greg in New Jersey, call back for your prize. Give your information to Ryan. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk aliens and more Curtis, shockingly. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, 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 business is about to pick up. Tomorrow, uh, this radio station, there's an ad in the New York Post today advertising this. It's on our Facebook page as well, 77 WABC. Tomorrow is going to be the debut of a brand new radio program on this station. Um. And I was told about this for the first time yesterday. Um, everyone always thinks I'm I'm an insider and I have inside knowledge. As I said to Michael Smirconish, nobody believes me when I say I really don't know anything because I, I'm uh, here overnights. But yesterday uh, I learned about this and I was told, shh, don't say anything. And I didn't. Didn't say anything. Uh, right after the show I learned about it. I wouldn't know who I would have had an opportunity to say anything. But then... I saw this ad that's going to be in today's New York Post, uh, that is in today's New York Post. Anthony Weiner is back, joining Curtis Slewa. Tune in to 77 WABC Radio and listen to this dynamic duo pound it out. The left versus the right. Hard-hitting talk program every Saturday, 2 to 4 p.m. Listen live at WABC radio.com and it's funny anthony weiner was on another show yesterday he was on a show hosted by uh my my friend arthur idala and towards the end arthur asked anthony about what his new career was going to be and asked if he was going to be launching a career in radio and anthony weiner sort of downplayed it this is what he said 
No, I'm going to start doing every once in a while, uh, every weekly, a radio spot with Curtis Lewa on another radio station. Now, and of course, this is the radio station that he's going to be on from 2 to 4 p.m. every Saturday. And um, this is the New York Post article on this that, uh, that was running today. In what may be the oddest coupling in radio history, former Democratic Congressman Anthony Weiner will be co-hosting a New York show with Guardian Angels founder and former Republican mayoral candidate Curtis Slewa. The ex-politician, who was sidelined by a number of sexting scandals and sentenced to 21 months in federal prison for transferring obscene material to a minor, will co-host a new opinion program called The Left versus the Right. Uh, meanwhile, we do have a Left versus the Right on Sundays with Chris Hahn and Curtis on WABC Radio starting this weekend. But Wiener says the new high-profile gig isn't part of a larger comeback plan. Quote, I'm not going back into public life. I, first of all, let me pause here. I, I will read you the rest of the quote. But I don't believe that at all. I think all Anthony Weiner thinks about is getting back into public life. I think that I think he wakes up in the middle of the night, and whereas I think, or you know, how do I get back to sleep? Weiner thinks, how can I get back into public life? Um, I'm doing a radio show with a friend of mine. <sighs> They're not friends, please. Um, he added, it's not a conscious decision before joking to us. I have a face for radio, but I don't know if I have a place in radio as a career. Sometimes it is what it is. We're told the new show, which will focus on topics affecting New York City, will give equal time to the conservative and liberal perspectives and will also not shy away from Wiener's past. There's a lot of water under the bridge. There have been a lot of opportunities for me to process a lot of stuff. A lot of time has passed. I don't think I would be going on the radio if I didn't think Curtis or listeners would ask tough questions. <laughs> and that is where I am curious what your reaction to this is, right? Are you going to be listening tomorrow uh, to Curtis and Anthony Weiner from 2 to 4? I'll tell you, I'm going to be listening uh, out of curiosity. I want to hear not only how Curtis and Weiner go at it with one another, but I want to hear how uh, Anthony Weiner uh, deals with callers like Jennifer from Boston. I have a tough time debating Jennifer from Boston, and I'm nowhere near as smug nor as liberal as Anthony Weiner. Uh, and I'm also curious, look, um, Weiner was convicted. Uh, the, I mean, it, it, some people describe him as a convicted sex offender, but he was convicted of distributing obscene material and pled guilty, and that's where he got 21, 21 months in, in prison. And he had engaged in sexting with a 15-year-old girl from North Carolina. So a couple of questions here for you. One, if you're a conservative, are you going to listen? Or are you so turned off by Anthony Weiner that you won't? Because I think the goal of this show is, nobody has consulted me, but I think the goal of this show is to broaden the radio station's reach. We certainly have a lot of conservatives that listen, and I think the thinking is by doing some more of these left versus right shows that maybe that's an opportunity to get more uh, people that are left of center to listen to the station as well, which I think is a laudable goal. Two, and this is a question I'd really love to know the answer to, if you're a Democrat, are you going to listen? Because I know a lot of Democrats who are furious with Anthony Weiner. A lot of Democrats that blame Anthony Weiner for um, Hillary Clinton losing the presidential election to Donald Trump. They're not a fan of his at all. So uh, I'm curious, one, if it gives you any pause to listen to someone that was convicted of 
sexting with a 15-year-old girl. Two, uh, putting aside the sexting scandal, are you interested to hear this this show, This the, you know, the two of them? You have Curtis, who ran as a Republican for mayor, and Weiner, who ran as a Democrat for mayor twice. And w- what do you think about this? If you're thinking of calling in tomorrow, what are you going to ask Weiner? 800-848-WABC. I am going to be in- listening tomorrow out of curiosity, but uh, I do wonder how it's going to go because Weiner is smart. He really is. And he's very quick-witted. And he's also, um, he's got a good sense of humor. That being said, much like Mark Green, Weiner also has this just incredible smugness about him. I mean, you talk about a guy that wants you to know that he is, and this has nothing to do with politics. There are conservatives that are this way too. But you talk about a guy that wants you to know that he is the smartest person in the room and that really isn't humbled by any of these experiences. I think it's Anthony Weiner. So I'm curious how you think this is going to go and whether you're going to be listening. 800-848-9222. And, you know, the last question I'll ask, and I realize that threw just a hodgepodge of stream of consciousness questions at you, but tough. Um, is Curtis the best partner for Anthony Weiner? Right? Because Curtis, yes, he was the Republican nominee for mayor, but Curtis is not a Trump supporter. So he's not going to be sitting there defending the legacy of Donald Trump or holding Trump's water. Uh, And Curtis has only been a Republican for a year. Would that show be better, a left versus right show, with somebody that's a Trump supporter or somebody a little more conservative? Somebody like Joe Borelli, for instance, or Gavin Wax. What do you think? Give me your thoughts. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Andy B. on Staten Island, the father of our theme song. Hello, Andy. Hey, that's right. Don't forget that. I like that guy who was saying we got to take you further away from sounding like George Norrie. Because sometimes when you play that In the Desert song, you know, like we don't need that In the Desert song. We got Frank Morano. Well, I appreciate like that. I, I really do do that as a tribute to uh, Art and Bell. Don't cause... hang up so fast. Though. All right, well, go ahead. Make your comment you then. drive me crazy. Uh, Mark Simone, I did the commercial with him when we were 18 years old from WPIX, like when he was doing the punk stuff. So I know him forever. I've worked on voiceovers. You know what he did? I, I came on the show with him on WOR when he started, and he loved me. Things were going great. I was his first caller, guest, whatever you want to say. You know, I'd write parodies. And as soon as he started hitting number one, he started getting nasty. Very nasty. So he's an un, you know, unsuspecting. All right. Well, look, Mark's not here to de- Mark's him. not here to defend himself. So, uh, so we'll let we'll, well, we'll let him off. I'm not saying anything too bad. Right. So okay. Don't forget, I'm like you. I still love the guy. He, you know, but you're a lot like him. You know, like something about everything, Frank. You always shock me. All right. Well, uh, hey, Joe, do you have thoughts on this Anthony Weiner show, uh, Andy? Oh, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to get that in, and I needed to ask you if you got the CD of the new song. No, I haven't. I got it out to you. I got one envelope back. I sent like four. Yeah, no, I haven't haven't gotten anything yet. All right. So, Andy, let me get to some other Uh, folks here. Wait, wait, Weiner? Wiener, I wonder what they could do when they start getting an overhaul of calls about his wiener. 
That's very funny. Okay. Well, we, it took us a long time to get there, but we got there eventually. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Good morning. Um, no, I won't listen. I, I'm really surprised by this and turned off by this, Frank, the news. Um, you know, you're a new dad. I'm a mom. Um, the thing that bothered me the most about Anthony Weiner was that his son was on the bed in one of those photo sessions. That's despicable. That's despicable. I agree. Uh, look, I mean, and uh, look, I think there's a reason people were rightly turned off by that. It's uh, not something uh, even uh, it's not something I can imagine myself doing. And uh, clearly the guy has some serious problems. And I know he's worked to get treatment for those problems. And look, he paid the piper. He did a 21 month prison sentence. He was punished for those crimes. And uh, now, you know, here he is out and he's free. I am going to be listening because really out of curiosity, like like uh, the, it's a mad scientist style por- potion, you know, this dose of Curtis, this dose of Wiener. And uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of fireworks between the two of them tomorrow because Curtis doesn't like to do that with a partner. He likes to help them get their sea legs first. It's only once Wiener starts to be uh, extra adversarial that I think Curtis will respond in kind. 800-848-WABC. Tell me what you think of the newest incarnation of left versus right on Saturday. Hey, and you know what I'm not doing? First of all, I am going to be listening. But you know what I'm not doing? Unlike um, uh, Neil Young, I'm not walking off the station or anything. I am thankful that I still have a platform to broadcast for four hours, whether Wiener's on the station, Curtis, or anybody else. I'm not concerned with whoever else is on the station and that's one of the many things that separates me from Neil Young. Tell me what you think about this new show, 800-848-9222. David is in Los Angeles. Hello, David. You know, Katsimatidis and Chad Lopez have done the best job of any talk show station I've ever heard in my life. And I'm, I'm stunned and appalled of the lapse of judgment, scraping the bottom of the barrel with this guy, not even about the texting. That's Huma Aberdeen's ex-husband, right, from the Hillary Clinton cabal. Correct. Isn't that the guy with the laptop that the NYPD looked at and said they cried and almost vomited of things that they can't even repeat? No, no, you don't give this guy a platform. You know, I, I disagree with, you know, oh, well, let's have both sides. That is not the guy to give a platform for. And I'm really stunned, and there's no way I would ever listen to that. I'm surprised that Katz Matidis would let this happen. Seriously. Thank you, David. Meantime, I got a letter here from Anna who writes, Wiener and Curtis, brilliant pairing. Wiener, smart, and the boy can talk. They're well-matched in energy level. That's true. That's true. 800-848-WABC. Jim is in Afton, New York. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. Love the show. Thank you. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a poor choice. I can't stand Anthony, Anthony Wiener. I don't care if he's sharp or quick-witted. I mean, I like Curtis. I, I used to listen to Curtis and Kuby, even though I didn't like Ron Kuby, but I could tolerate Kuby. Wiener, just a snide mag. I can't stand him. That would be a good, a good choice. I think, I know you don't like him for certain reasons. I think uh, Sammy Dubois Gravano and Curtis would be a good pairing. You might have to have a bouncer in there, but I think that'd be a good pairing. Yeah, well, uh, that would be interesting. I mean, I don't know if Sammy Gravano can comment on uh, property taxes or uh, welfare reform or, or Medicare reform the way that Curtis can. So I think there's a very narrow subject area that they can get into. 
And also, um, you know, they they really come from the same place at this point in terms of disliking the Gaudis. So, I mean, it would be the two of them falling over one another to agree about how terrible the Gaudis are. I'd rather yeah, see sure. I'd rather see, um, you know, somebody who was in a more adversarial position with Kurt. You know, one of the one of the many and thank you for the call, Jim. One of the many Curtis incarnations of his show that I enjoyed was him and Jeffrey Lickman. Because there was that sort of natural tension there. Same with Kubi, though. Same with Kubi. Uh, Peter is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. Yeah, you know, with this thing with uh, Wiener, look, I don't like what he did and everything, but I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you give somebody, say, he went through therapy and stuff, so maybe give his first and second chance. I've gotten a first and second chance with my alcohol abuse and uh, my drug abuse back in the uh, 40, 40 years from now, I'm 66. You know me from the island. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'd listen to him. I loved him when he was wrong with Curtis. I mean, he they, they, they interwove very good back and forth. Kubi was wild with him. I mean, we were over by Andrew's Diner doing a podcast, and it was great. You know, it was like a love-me-hate-me thing. So, I mean, if Mr. Caspertides thinks it's a good idea... Uh, I, you know, I mean, let's see how it goes. You, you know, it, it's given me an idea, Pete. Thank you. I'm no fan of either of them, and I never voted for, um, well, actually, I voted for one of them once. But I'm no fan of either of them. But if we're going to bring back fiery, scandal-plagued politicians, how about an hour of M- Michael Grimm, the former Republican congressman who went to prison, and Governor Elliot Spitzer. Imagine that. Those two, mano a mano, for an hour. Imagine that. Uh, or what else could we do? We could have um, Dennis Gallagher, the disgraced former New York Republican New York City Council member, and Eric Schneiderman, the disgraced former New York State Attorney General. That might be interesting. Those are all guys that I'd love to see a, uh, a pairing of. Matt is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Matt. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Yeah, when I just heard you say that, I just got sick to my stomach. So you will not be listening tomorrow? I will not be listening, and I can't believe Kat, your boss, Katz Matitas, is bringing this guy on. That I'm actually at the point like, you know what? You bring this guy on, I'm done even listening to your whole WABC. Well, no, don't hold it against me, Matt. I need you. No, 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 because I'm saying Katz, I don't know, he's, I don't know what she's thinking about. Well, you know I, look, this I, guy I, is a, a disgrace. And to, to give, like the other caller said, to give him a platform, I'm done. You know what? It, every, everybody's a sellout. It's it's done. I'm not even done listening to your station. Well, no, no. Don't, I, don't abandon me, Matt. I need you. Um, now, it's funny. Both Rita Cosby and Dominic Carter, when I saw them when I came in last night, this was the first question they asked me about was, what's the story with, with Wiener? How do you think it's going to do? Ultimately, if the show doesn't get good numbers, it won't continue. If it does get good numbers, it will continue. As to what John's thinking, first of all, I think it might have even been Curtis's idea. I don't know. But I think, one, they're thinking this is a good opportunity to get left-of-center listeners. Uh, And two, it's an an opportunity to take somebody who, even though he is disgraced, does have some talent as a talker and get some publicity. You're already seeing that with the New York Post uh, article on this subject. It's going to be very interesting. Now, what what one person said to me, it's going to be interesting to see the media coverage on this. Are there going to be protests outside 
um, outside our radio station demanding that WABC not hire a convicted sex offender? Or are there going to be protests from uh, family members of uh, exploited children saying WABC shouldn't hire people that uh, that sexed with 15-year-olds? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I'm certainly eager. But I'll tell you, the thing that's exciting about being, the thing that I like about radio is it being unpredictable. It's one of the reasons I like that first hour that we do. It's one of the reasons that I, you know, I like taking callers from all walks of life. I really hate when a caller gets gets banned because um, you don't know what's going to happen. You put two personalities like Curtis Lee and Anthony Weiner together, and you just have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, Curtis's personal history, he's never done anything like what Anthony Weiner's done. But Curtis's personal history is no day at the beach either. And then you combine that with somebody who exercised such poor judgment that he would send such graphic sects uh, to perfect strangers, women he'd never even met before, uh, while he was in Congress and considered a rising star and while he was a mayoral candidate. Then, then somehow he makes the comeback of all comebacks and is the leading Democratic candidate for mayor in a Democratic city. And he gets caught again doing the same thing. And then, even after he gets caught twice doing this, you'd think at that point, okay, let me be done with this. Let me delete my Twitter account. Let me throw my phone away. The guy keeps doing it and then does it with a 15-year-old. At some point, you know, the, it, you know, it's just pathological. Now, um, ultimately, he didn't uh, physically hurt anyone, never physically touched anyone. And he paid his, paid the piper, paid his debt to society, did 20 months in prison. And uh, I, I still, I'm going to listen because I can't wait to see what happens. I just, I, I, who can predict it? 800-848-WABC. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Uh, I'm with you. His past transgressions, he's done his time. Um and I don't think it may, maybe it wasn't his fault. Maybe he was it was ambient. Um, but besides that, I know co-hosts with Curtis. They don't usually last very long. Not not in the last you know few years that I've. But could be some fireworks. And uh, if you get some press about, there's no such thing as bad press. I guess right. That's what they say. Well, I mean, that's the old adage, although when I had Jeremy Murphy in here uh, promoting his book, he said uh, the opposite. He said that wasn't the case. Uh, Just got an email here from one Democrat who said that he's furious with Anthony Weiner because he believes that uh, Weiner caused Trump's win over Hillary and is thus directly responsible for the 6-3 conservative Supreme Court and the total loss of the liberal agenda he advocated in the House. You know, um, Weiner basically acknowledged that yesterday in the interview that he did with Arthur Idala. He said, look, when there's an election that close, anything could be a factor, including him and, you know, the the way that Comey handled uh, the investigation into him. I want to squeeze in at least one more here, and then we'll get to Bryce Zabel, who's backed by popular demand. Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Good evening. Good morning. Good morning. I don't think I don't think it's a good idea. I'm so surprised and very disappointed to hear that he would be featured on this station. I won't listen. I'm sorry. Well, hey, no, that's that's why I posed the question, because I'm curious of how how many of the WABC faithful will 
um, will listen even though they don't like one of the personalities? How many new listeners will emerge and, and what's, what's going to happen? Thank you, Gina. Um, I'm very curious to see how this works out. Who knows? Could be um, the biggest mistake since New Coke or this could be a wave of the future, a, scan- a uh, host of scandal-plagued politicians getting an opportunity to revive their careers and their personas on the radio. I'm very interested to see how it works out. 800-848-9222. Bryce Zabel joins me straight ahead. We're going to talk aliens and the Beatles. That's a winning combination if ever there was one. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A couple of weeks ago, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with uh, Bryce Zabel. It's rare uh, that we have a guest that's so well-versed uh, on so many different subjects, has such an extensive resume, and who just sounds so good. But that was the case with Bryce Zabel. He's a veteran television producer, director, writer, author, and these days he is podca- a podcaster where he is the co-host of the Need to Know podcast. Bryce Zabel, welcome back. Hey, Frank, I enjoyed my first visit with you so much. I've been really looking forward to this. Let's get into it. Absolutely. Now, the last time you were here, you told us a little bit about uh, John Lennon's uh, UFO sighting. And uh, I'm wondering, I mean, you described it in detail two weeks ago, but I'm wondering, to the best of your knowledge, how did that shape the rest of John Lennon's uh, career as a songwriter, as a musician, as a personality? Did that change him at all? I think it did change him. I, certainly, if you go by his public statements, he almost was obsessed by it. I mean, immediately after this sighting, which was in August of 1974, he told all his friends about it. He called people about it. He had uh, he got in touch with the police department and, and with uh, journalistic sources, and he wrote songs about it. Uh, in fact, his next album that came out after this 1974 sighting was an album called Walls and Bridges, and he even wrote on the album cover uh, about the and, and drew in a, one of his little doodles about seeing the UFO. And if you remember, literally up until his death in 1980, he was working on a song called Nobody Knows uh, that in that involved the lyric that said, "There's UFOs over New York, and I ain't too surprised." So. Yeah, I think it changed his life. I, I really do. Did did other folks witness that particular John Lennon UFO sighting? Uh, I've had a hard time tracking down specific people. I would love to be able to say I've talked to a bunch of them. That has not happened. However, at the time, 
He uh, did have a friend call the police department about it. Uh, he didn't want to call the police himself because he thought, uh, well, they'll just say, hey, it's John Lennon calling about a UFO. And he, right. he didn't think he'd get very far with that. But his friend called and the police that he called uh, said that they'd had two or three reports. And they also talked to uh, one of the uh, local papers, and I'm, it's escaping me which one it was right now. Maybe Daily News, I'm not sure. Uh, but they said they'd have like seven or eight other reports on it. So he wasn't the only one based on that. But I haven't been able – I would love very much to be able to get somebody on the record. And, and if I ever do, I'll record them and we'll, we'll play Wonderful. it on your show. That would be great. And the next time I, uh, I run into Geraldo Rivera, I'm going to ask him about this because he became pretty friendly with, uh, with John Lennon towards the end of his life. Now, you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're a pretty big Beatles fan, right? I've even written a book about the All Beatles. Right. Well, that's what once, I was – Yeah. Once there was a way. Yeah, I'm a very big Beatles So that's what I was going to ask you. You wrote this novel about yeah. the Beatles staying together. Uh, tell right. folks about that. Give, me, give us the title again, because we do have a lot of Beatles fans in our audience. Of course. It's called Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together? And it, it basically is exactly what's in the title. I just think there was a lot of pent-up uh, desire among fans to see what might have happened if the Beatles could have held on a little bit longer. So um, I'd already written a book about what would have happened if Kennedy had stayed alive uh, and gotten out of Dallas alive. And my uh, publisher said, well, what do you want to do next? Because it had won a a big award, the Sidewise Award for Alternate History. So they said, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do the Beatles, because I thought uh, it would just be something that would, uh, well, it would be fun to write. And it was. It was terrifically fun to write. But I tried to make it very real. It's not a fantasy. Nobody goes back in time. There's no crazy stuff like that. I just tried to ask myself, what were the actual issues that kept them apart and how might they have worked together to overcome them? And so um, that's what Once There Was a Way is about. Did you end up seeing the film yesterday, which takes sort of the opposite premise uh, where a fellow wakes up in a world where the Beatles never existed? Uh, Sure, of course. And I enjoyed it very much. Um, I actually enjoyed keeping a, a world where the Beatles stayed together even better, though, because, I mean, let's face it, it was nice to have the guy from yesterday singing Beatles songs, but it was also tragic and sad. Sure. There were no Beatles in that world. Yeah, it, now, um, as somebody that I imagine did a fair amount of research into the Beatles and their breakup, it, so often we were told that one of the primary causes of the breakup was John Lennon and his re- relationship and collaboration with Yoko Ono. Is that true from what you can tell? Well, it's very interesting. You don't have to just take my word for it. If people want to right now, they can, of course, watch the uh, Get Back documentary, which uh, is on the Disney Plus channel. And that's the Peter Jackson directed documentary about the making of what started out as Get Back, but turned into Let It Be. And what you'll notice about that is that we've all heard that, you know, Yoko was such a problem that, in fact, uh, you know, the, the other Beatles turned against her. But you'll see scenes in this documentary where Yoko is there and, and she is accepted by the others, uh, at least uh, at least she seems like he is. You see uh, pictures where Yoko and Linda McCartney are even hanging out together and talking. Uh, even Paul McCartney, to this day, you have to at least give him his due. If he has said 
that if the Beatles broke up, it wasn't just because of Yoko, that there were other issues. And I certainly my research would tell tell me that. I think that Yoko, obviously, uh, John bringing Yoko uh, to, to everywhere he went wasn't probably the, the best thing for a tight group of four guys. But again, going to the Get Back documentary, you'll see that all of the Beatles brought their respective significant others to those recording sessions. So uh, you can't just lay it all at John and Yoko's feet anymore. I think that there were uh, structural issues to the Beatles. There were issues about money. There were issues about just being burned out on each other. All all of that. Excuse me. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, I right the day before you were on, I spoke with a gentleman who is a, uh, you know, he's a man of science. He doesn't deal much with the paranormal, and uh, we do a great deal of that on on this show. Uh, But uh, I was asked to ask him by a listener if he lent any credence to the idea of alien abduction. And I found his response so interesting. This is what Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, said on the subject of alien abduction a couple of weeks ago. Do you give any credence to the claims of people who say that they might have been abducted by space uh, aliens or have come into contact with extraterrestrials or that maybe even the extraterrestrials were responsible for building the Egyptian pyramids or Inca fortresses? Yes, Frank, I got to go to this one. and, And this is very interesting. The abduction situations, I have a little bit more, you know, believability in. And, and again, I say this from ignorance in a way, not arrogance. I was friends with a woman named Betty Hill. Oh, yeah, we've covered her case quite a bit on this show. I knew her. I went to her home when she was alive, God rest her soul, many, many times, interviewed her on shows that I did in college. And I was kind of a disbeliever until I went there and really read the books and read the stories about under deep hypnosis. They both tell the same story. Her husband passed away, obviously, soon after. But the point is, the most prolific one is a gentleman that I know very well is Travis Walton. Mm. And uh, his story, I mean, is, is so amazing. The movie Fire in the Sky with D.B. Sweeney, just literally, folks, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's more of an adult movie at the very end because, not X-rated, but it's adult because, Frank, what they show, without spoiling the movie for people, Travis Walton's description of the aliens, of what they do to him, and they show that in the movie as the end of that movie. That was one of the spookiest things. But I believe that Travis had something happen to him. So I'm on board with that possibility because I, I really don't know. But I always want to learn to try to seek out knowledge and be an open mind. Bryce, I knew I thought his answer as a guy of science was so interesting. Sure. And I know you've studied and looked into and done some work uh, with respect to the Barney and Betty Hill incident. Sure. In a nutshell, can you explain what the Barney and Betty Hill abduction was, why that was so groundbreaking, and its place in the history of alien abductions today? Absolutely. Well, the first reason it's groundbreaking is because it was the first American case where anyone publicly said they'd been abducted by aliens. The case happened in 1961. And it is made more interesting by the fact that Betty and Barney Hill were an interracial couple. Uh, Barney was a black man, uh, Betty a white woman. And, of course, uh, in 1961, that had uh, uh, certain public penalties to it uh, uh, in in terms of just the life you would lead. And uh, they were coming back from a delayed honeymoon up in Canada, and uh, they claimed this is uh, in September of 1961 that they were stopped and taken aboard an aircraft. Now, what makes their story interesting uh, that this previous person was talking about is that they um, 
not only were the first to claim this, but they were the first to uh, experience missing time. Uh, they got home and they thought that, you know, they'd seen a UFO, but they didn't really remember anything about it. And then later they submitted to regressive hypnosis. So they were the first people to do that. And uh, you also mentioned Travis Walton. I want to wrap these together into this answer. What makes those two cases in particular uh, interesting is that in the Betty and Barney Hill case, and we could go on for hours about it, as you point out, but that hypnosis, if you listen to those uh, hypnosis tapes, they're absolutely riveting and they're chilling at the same time because Betty and Barney Hill are freaking out as they tell this story under uh, hypnosis. And the thing is, uh, where if somebody claimed that they were abducted by aliens today, you could say, well, maybe they watched too many movies. Maybe they've been watching ancient aliens too often, that kind of thing. Betty and Barney had no such template to, to, to make this up from. So those hypnosis tapes, very important evidence. And as for Travis Walton, he was the guy that disappeared for five days and then showed up again. And, and he had been with his logging crew in Arizona. And those guys, uh, when Travis disappeared, were suspected of murdering which made it a fascinating case. I covered it as a young trail uh, radio reporter back then. But what's fascinating about that case is those guys all passed lie detector tests. Yeah. And uh, so you have the extra part of the abduction phenomenon there. But other than that, uh, I would just close by saying this. Uh, it isn't just those two people. Those are two excellent cases. And while it is on the spectrum of things ufological, it is on the far side of it. You can't dismiss it because many hundreds of thousands of people have claimed this happened to them. In terms of the B Betty and Barney Hill incident, uh, I had read that you were involved in a TV project yes. about that. What, what was that about? Tell us about that. Well, it's still ongoing. Uh, I've been fascinated by this for years, and I optioned the book uh, Captured, which is a, a book about the Betty and Barney Hill uh, case written by Kathy Martin and Stanton Friedman. And um, I've adapted it into a one-hour drama pilot for what would be a limited series. And we are literally in the market with it right now. We're getting some good uh, reactions from people. I think, you know, one of the, the things we bumped up against is literally that it's not quite any one particular genre. It's not science fiction. It's not race. Mm. It's kind of a little bit of both. And uh, and it's a fascinating story. And I, I really think we're going to to get it put together. And I believe that in a, in a few years, uh, hopefully at the latest, uh, people will be able to see what we do with it. And then they can judge a little bit more about the case for themselves. There is actually a plaque commemorating the Betty and mm -hmm. Barney Hill abduction up in New England, isn't there? <laughs> this is a good story for uh, investigative journalism. Uh, I, I try, I'm a former reporter, as you know, and uh, I, so I try to do a deep dive on, on um, research when I, when I try to adapt anything for screenwriting. So I've been doing a deep dive on Betty and Barney for years, and they did put up a plaque, uh, a road sign, a historical marker in New Hampshire uh, about the Betty and Barney Hill case. So I started um, researching this, and I found out uh, that that uh, marker has a couple of inaccuracies on it. I wrote a big article about it for uh, the Medium publication, Trail of the Saucers, that I, I publish. And it turns out that this almost never happens, uh, but the state of New Hampshire person who is in charge of road signs and historical markers read my article and said, you got a pretty good case. We're going to take down the existing marker, rewrite it based on your article, and put up a new one. 
I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, to know that you can have that kind of uh, of an impact on something that so often seems immovable, that's really impressive. It just blew me away that it would happen. Uh, and, and, and frankly, the thing that I found that was inaccurate is that they'd almost written the, the guy that broke the story out of the story. There was a guy named John Luttrell Sr. who literally broke it. Uh, uh, for the Boston Traveler newspaper in 1965. Now, most people popularly think the first time they ever heard of Betty and Barney Hill was when the Interrupted Journey book was a big hit in the United States, and then it later became a movie with James Earl Jones starring in it. But the truth is that Interrupted Journey book came out in 1966, a full year after this other guy broke it. So, and the guy that broke it originally did it the old-fashioned way as an investigative reporter. He found out about the story. He tracked it down. He interviewed witnesses. And he did all the shoe leather work that, that is necessary to do good journalism. And I wanted to honor him. And now it sounds like the state of New Hampshire is going to do that, too. That's terrific. You mentioned the work that you do for uh, Medium. This week, you published a fascinating article on uh, your Medium site UFO confirmation, a change is going to come. And you talk about how humanity's survival in what may be a universe that's quite crowded requires rapid thinking and bold action, not just political action, not just religious, not just scientific, but everything. Explain to us what a game changer UFO confirmation will be for not just American society, but human society. Well, I think it, it literally confirms we are not alone if, when, when and if it happens, and that that will be a game changer because suddenly our view of ourselves and where we fit into things will change. Listen, I try to stay pretty grounded on an ungrounded topic, if you will, uh, most of the time. But occasionally I like to write like that article where I sort of explain to people what I think my estimate of the situation is. And where I come down on this right now is – Uh, Since the New York Times uh, uh, sort of wrote a front page article about the UAP UFO situation back in 2017, we've been on the fast track where there seem to be new revelations uh, constantly. And where I go to right now is uh, many of your listeners probably already know this, but in uh, June of last year, uh, June of 2021, there was a report released by the intelligence community of the United States ordered by the Senate Intelligence Committee, passed into law, et cetera. And they put out a preliminary assist, uh, assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena. I'll boil this entire report down to just a few key concepts. Concept number one, they said these things are real. And we don't know exactly what they are, but they're physically real. They can go 10,000 miles an hour. They can do fast turns. They behave in ways that our current technology can't behave. Part two, they said, we don't think the United States makes this, even in our black budget Mm. stuff. And part three, we don't think China or Russia makes them either. So I simply submit to your uh, audience and to everyone else, if they're real and we don't, and they're not made in America and Russia and China aren't making them, that leaves a very small list of other people who might. And I think you have to think it's probably something exotic, which is why when we simply confirm to ourselves that these things are real and they're coming from someplace or somebody that's not us, that will, in fact, change the world as we know it. Wow, uh, that is well. Wow. I mentioned, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Bryce Zabel. He's the co-host of the Need to Know podcast. I enjoyed uh, one of the more uh, recent episodes that you did. I think it's the most recent, actually, 
where you explore the um, the issue of UAP visits and whoever's responsible for these UAP visits. Uh, you ask the question, do they want us to know uh, that they're there? Uh, what do you think? Do you think that uh, extraterrestrials, if that's presumably who's responsible for flying in these crafts, do you think that they want uh, to be known or or not? Well, Frank, let's look at it from the most basic point of view. If they literally wanted us to be known, they could probably commandeer your radio signal and every television signal around the planet and announce that they were here. Or they could, in fact, land on the White House lawn or in Central Park. All right. So they haven't done that. Uh, And in fact, if you try to just be intuitive about this, the one thing you could say that humanity and whoever these others are seem to agree about over the years is that it should be a secret because both sides could have ended the secrecy. We could have had a news conference and and set foot in, in the East Room of the White House and the president could have said, we're not alone and here's our evidence. But we never did that, haven't come even close to that. Uh, And they never landed on the White House lawn. So uh, we've we've agreed that there should be some secrecy. Now, what is interesting, though, is over the last 75 years, there have been tens of thousands of excellent reports from people who have seen these strange objects in our skies. And uh, you could even argue that they're picking up in some intensity. They're certainly being observed over our nuclear sites and in association with nuclear weapons. That's what these latest videos that came out in 2017 and 2018 are all about. Those are Navy videos where our own naval pilots operating with the best equipment that the United States government can buy for the military with sense bristling with sensors that can come up with the best data uh, possible with pilots that have been trained to recognize every kind of plane that they might encounter are saying they've seen something otherworldly, all right? So we are getting to the place where these same pilots are saying that they're seeing hundreds of these things, and sometimes every day. So, yeah, I think we may be getting to a place where our hand is being uh, potentially pushed on this, where somebody wants uh, to talk about it in a more public way. You mentioned that these beings could just lie on the uh, land on the front lawn of the White House, and while they haven't done that, that's not terribly far off from what happened back in 1952 uh-huh. with the Washington D.C. UFO incident, where there was a series of UFO reports in the summer of 1952 over Washington D.C., and the most publicized sightings took place on consecutive weekends in July. And uh, this seems to be a pretty brazen uh, Uh, flight right in the vicinity of the White House. I know you you cover this on your podcast. What is your take on this particular incident, the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO incident? Well, I think you covered the case very well. Just to put a point on what you just said, this is two weekends in a row. And each weekend, there was a, a, a light show put on in the skies above Congress and above the White House. Well reported Washington, at the time, by the way, covered well by the Washington reported. Post and other major news publications as well. Absolutely. And it literally took the uh, uh, Democratic nominating convention and threw it off the front page of the paper because it was such a big deal. So Lots of people saw these things, but more importantly, the U.S. military saw them up close and personal. And I would just ask you uh, and your listeners today, imagine if fleets of UFOs 
were observed flying over Washington, D.C. today over a weekend, and then they did it again the next weekend. And our own government couldn't tell you what they were or how they got there. I think we'd have everybody in the entire country freaking out about it. And the whole idea that we would still be debating on your show and other shows whether these things are real would sort of be out the window. The question wouldn't be, are they real anymore? It would be, who are they and what do they want? And and I guess to sort of take it in a circular way back here, what happened in 1952, what happened uh, actually 75 years ago in 1947 when there was Roswell and the very first Kenneth Arnold sighting and those 10,000 other uh, cases that have happened since, all of that may be leading to a place where we we can start to stop focusing on just proving that they exist, because now our own government has admitted that they do. And we can begin to turn our intellectual and, and public firepower on the bigger question, uh, again, who are they, what do they want, and what does it mean to us? And I think as we move forward over the next few years, uh, I guess that's what I was writing about in today's article, as we move forward in the next couple of years, we're apt to get closer and closer to that moment when we all collectively say, wow, we got a situation going on here. What are we going to do about it? Or can we do anything about it? Bryce, uh, my only regret in having you on the radio is our time together must end uh, because I find you uh, so fascinating and I very much appreciate the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. You got it, my friend. Thank you. And hi to all your listeners. Thank you. Be sure to check out Bryce Zabel's podcast. It is called The Need to Know Podcast. It is available wherever podcasts are available. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, coming up in just five, about five minutes, we'll have denunciations. And then, are we living in a computer simulation? Answer, maybe. Uh, we're going to get into that in a big way with a philosoph- philosopher who has spent a great deal of time studying that question named David Chalmers. I want to remind you, if you haven't done so, please make sure you download the latest edition of the Racket Report podcast. You could find it at WABCradio.com or wherever podcasts are available. Just search The Racket Report. Uh, Not only should you listen to it, but you should subscribe. The most recent edition deals with Vincent Chin Giganti and the Genovese crime family. The next edition deals primarily with the Bonanno 
crime family. Hey, speaking of crime, so I was telling you about the problems that we're having over with, with our roof, and uh, we finally we finally got an estimate yesterday for what it would take to redo the portion of our roof that's leaking. Now, not the whole thing, just the portion of our roof that's uh, that's leaking. It was something like $15,000. Now, needless to say, we're not having that done. But um, I think what uh, what my wife was recommending, and again, she had this conversation with me right after I'd just woken up. I was half, you know, half stood in God. And I was, uh, I think what she said is they're just going to add another layer of shingles to the roof that over the portion that's leaking so that that hopefully it will diminish the leaking over our bar room, which is substantially less. Then in a couple of years, if we have to redo the whole thing, retar and reshingle, that's the plan. So I, I know some of you complain that I don't always update you after taking our your input. That's the that's the latest. 800-848-9222. You can find me on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano, or email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Rye is at the Jersey Shore. Hello, Rye. Hi there. Uh, I just want to say I'm sorry to hear about your roof. That's that's no good. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Otherwise, I just wanted to mention something regarding uh, the alien topic you guys were just on. And I feel like I've done like a good amount of thinking about this, not that like, I'm a scientist or not really know anything, but I hear a lot of scientists saying that there are just so many like stars and galaxies out there. Like There are more stars and galaxies out there than there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. And the distance between us and all of those stars and galaxies just, like, makes the probability of aliens being here, like, almost impossible. I just think that's really interesting. All right. Well, look, um, I guess look, the question is, what are all these objects that we're seeing? If they're not extraterrestrials, what are they? Are they people from the future? Are they high-end military vehicles? Are they people from other dimensions? We don't know. Uh, th- we do know there have been repeated sightings. That we can't explain. So the question is not, do they exist? What are they? If they're not aliens, what are they? 800-848-9222. Hector is in Westchester. Hello, Hector. Hector. All right, Hector has um, something else to do. Let me say hello to Jay in the Queen City, Cincinnati. Hello. Great show, Frank, as usual. Thank you. Okay. Um so the heavens and earth are made of cosmic material and cosmic dust, basically. So I'm, I'm begged to differ. I, I'm a pessimist. I think that there are extraterrestrials out there. And basically they should be made of the same cosmic material that we're made of. And if they are and they can be like us, we have a lot to fear. Why? They, Why do we have a lot to fear? Well, if, if you look at the history of humans... We should have a lot to fear when they come here and visit. All right. Well, I don't know that I agree, Jay. I mean, I think the um, there have been reports that uh, the behavior at certain missile silos and nuclear bases could actually be having a beneficial effect in terms of the preservation of the human race. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, look, I guess at this point, there's no way to know. Denunciations coming up in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. In the words of the great Barry Farber, who I think co-opted this from somebody that he used to produce for, Tex McCrary, keep asking questions.
is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano coming up in just a few minutes. We're going to talk with David Chalmers about the philosophies involved in virtual reality. If there's a virtual reality, right, um, is that any more or less real than our reality? Is our reality actually real? Some people say no. And how would you know? Doesn't matter. We're going to get into it. What does it mean about God, right? If this is actually a computer simulation, what does that say about God? Does it mean that God is the designer of the computer simulation? These are all difficult questions to wrap your head around, and uh, these are some of the questions we're going to explore with David Chalmers in just a bit. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I have to first begin by denouncing our health insurance company, UMR. Now... I don't want to get too personal here. I would get personal, but uh, I don't want to be disrespectful to my wife, Rachel. But UMR, um, we we had a lactation consultant come to the house. And UMR told us at the time, you have to pay this person, but we'll reimburse you completely, full price. Now, this was $350. So you pay her the $350, and then we got our reimbursement check. $38, $38. My wife goes on the phone with them, and she spends maybe two hours on the phone with them, maybe more, trying to figure out, wait a minute, you told us we were going to be reimbursed fully, 100%. Why are we only getting reimbursed $38? And needless to say, there were no good answers, but eventually you throw in the towel and you stop fighting. You realize, okay, the hours and hours that I'm spending on the phone with you people, it's not worth the additional uh, $312. So we did not get reimbursed, but my issue is not even with not getting reimbursed. Uh, The issue is lying. Why tell us you're going to reimburse us for the whole thing and then pretend like you have no idea what we're talking about when it comes time to get reimbursed? I mean, that's not an insurance company. And look, my dad was in the health insurance business for years. Uh, That's not an insurance company at that point. That's you're a con man at that point. So UMR, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Bloomberg News. Isn't it bad enough that the one thing that Joe Biden and congressional Republicans agree upon is is wanting to seemingly be tough on Russia and go to war with Russia? Bloomberg, the financial news site, made a huge blunder last week in accidentally reporting that Russia had invaded Ukraine with a headline on its homepage. This is what the homepage said. Live. Russia invades Ukraine. Now, excuse me, that's a pretty jarring mistake to make, isn't it? I mean, World War II ends. Oh, no, it doesn't. I mean, Russia invades Ukraine. That's what was actually on their site. And it stayed up there for about a half hour. How does a mistake like that stay up for a half hour on one of the biggest news sites in the world? Users who clicked on the eye-popping story were shown an error page. Well, we know a lot of people don't click. They just look at the headline. 
I want to denounce Mississippi. The uh, If you are living in Mississippi, you have the lowest life expectancy in the entire country. That's right. According to a federal report released this week, Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, came in, pardon the expression, dead last with life expectancy at 74.4 years of age. I must also denounce this Kansas woman, Allison Fluke Ekron, who was a mother and teacher from Kansas, who then chose to become an ISIS battalion leader. She was last in the U.S. on or about January 8th of 2011, and she ultimately emerged in Syria in 2014. Once there, according to one of at least six witnesses who say they interacted with her, she presented a plan of attack to a paid U.S. government source. That plan was for Ekron and other members of ISIS to dress like infidels and attack an American college campus with a backpack full of explosives. That attack was ultimately put on hold. Um, I I can't denounce this woman more vociferously. Look, it's a pretty great country, and you have a lot of freedoms by living here. There are a lot of people that die trying to come here. So if you choose to renounce that, to live the life of an Islamic fundamentalist where there's very little respect for individual liberties, especially for women, God bless you. Go have a good time. Live in your burqa in a cave somewhere. God bless you. But once you choose to join ISIS, a terrorist group that is actively killing United States uh, citizens around the globe, I lose all respect for you. Then... Once you try to use the fact that you're an American and you look like an American and you know the ways of an American, you try to use that fact to your benefit to help kill more innocent Americans on a college campus, you've crossed the line from being bad to being evil. Uh, That is pure evil, and I cannot denounce this woman, Allison Fluke Ekron, more vociferously. I must also denounce Spotify. I know, you know, Marlena Shiva, who's a free speech advocate, she was here. She was praising Spotify for not firing Joe Rogan. Well, look, they decided to remove more than 70 episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. They the more than 70 episodes of this podcast disappeared after videos of Rogan using racial slurs on past shows were circulating wildly on social media. Now, I don't understand. Why spend $100 million on this guy if you're going to delete 70 of his episodes? If you have to put a warning label up there, put a warning label up there. But I don't remember Spotify announcing when they signed Joe Rogan and spent $100 million on him. I don't remember them saying, oh, yeah, but we're going to delete the ones that we think people may find offensive. Throw a warning label up there. My wife and I, last weekend, we had on um, on the television set Gilligan's Island. And when you watch Gilligan's Island, it was one of those things where there was like three or four episodes in a row. And right before an episode started, they would put up a warning label about how some of the depictions on this uh, this particular program don't comport with uh, modern standards of what's appropriate. It was basically a disclaimer. If they have to do that for Joe Rogan, do it. But they shouldn't be taking down 
70 episodes and be celebrated at the same time as champions of free speech? Because they're not. They're not. They're not censoring as much as some people would like, like Neil Young, but they're still taking down 70 episodes, and I strongly disapprove. I want to denounce Major League Baseball. They are going to stop test. I can't even believe this. They're going to stop testing its their players for steroids after nearly 20 years. Or actually, they have stopped. They have stopped testing players for steroids for the first time in nearly 20 years due to the expiration of the sports drug agreement. Now, this is nuts. Uh, and I know this is partly due to the contract negotiations that are that are ha- being hammered out right now and that there's a lockout that started on December 2nd. This is a huge problem. Travis Tigart of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency said it should be a major concern to all those who value fair play. Just last month, we saw what happens with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens being denied induction to the Hall of Fame because of their steroid use. Now, if we're going to be keeping players out of the Hall of Fame, don't you think it's kind of important to make sure that testing for players is a priority? So maybe my denunciation is somewhat misplaced squarely at Major League Baseball. Maybe it should be a broader denunciation for all of the entities at play for this Major League Baseball lockout. If that's the case, so be it. I'll broaden the denunciation. But I find this absolutely reprehensible. I want to denounce... The folks at NBC. NBC is the network that is airing the big game this weekend. And they refused to air an ad critical of China. Now, the the congressman from Florida, Mike Waltz, he was on with uh, Rita Cosby this week. Very good interview. Go back and listen to the podcast if you didn't hear it. It was on WABCradio.com. This um, this ad was critical of China, and it basically encouraged people not to buy Chinese products. It talked about the genocide that's going on in the Xinjiang region of China. And it was, I think, a very powerful ad. NBC refused to air it. And I say, shame on you, NBC. They weren't asking for this ad for free. Apparently, they were willing to pay a handsome penny for this ad. Same rate everyone else was willing to pay. But because, seemingly, NBC is just as much into sucking up to China as the NBA is, they didn't want to ruffle any feathers. NBC, I do denounce you. I want to denounce Shimon Hayat, the so-called Tinder swindler. This guy is a real winner, let me tell you. Um, The Tinder swindler bilked a whole bunch of women out of money. And um, uh, uh, something to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Three of the women that this guy scammed, and there's a Netflix documentary about him. You can see it on uh, Netflix. It's called The Tinder Swindler. Three of the women this guy scammed, they set up a GoFundMe page in the hopes of raising 600,000 pounds 
after receiving a flood of support from sharing their story in the documentary. So this guy, the swindler himself, Shimon Hayat, a serial fraudster who posed as the son of a billionaire Israeli diamond merchant in order to swindle women he dated out of thousands of dollars, slammed their campaign to get back this money. Go ahead and help real associations, not these manipulators. This guy took to Instagram. This is what is called marketing. Now, he did delete it, but it's so interesting to me. What kind of a weird guy do you have to be to, one, swindle these women out of all this money, and then when they try to, when they try to get some of this money back through a GoFundMe campaign, you attack them. I don't understand. I can't understand. I want to denounce Canadian politician Jason Kenney. Now, I want to point out that the conduct that I'm denouncing him for, he has apologized for, but it's still worthy of a denunciation. Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, Canada, made comments comparing the treatment of unvaccinated Canadians to those who suffered from HIV and AIDS during the 1980s. Kenny, who has held his office since 2019, discussed COVID vaccines on Tuesday with reporters. And while answering a reporter's question, Kenny said the debate around immunizations and COVID mandates is causing deep divisions among Albertans. Everybody should avail themselves of the protection of safe and effective vaccines and that the choice not to get vaccinated is not just a personal choice. It does have social consequences. He then equated a stigma against the unvaccinated to a stigma against people with HIV and AIDS during the early days of the AIDS epidemic. But it's never OK to treat people like that, to stigmatize people in that way. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the attitudes that circulated in North America in the mid 80s about people with HIV and AIDS that there's this notion that they had to be kind of distanced for health reasons. Now, not surprisingly, this drew an immediate backlash. Uh, This is such a a weird thing to say. I mean, you want to compare the unvaccinated and the stigmatization of the unvaccinated to people that had HIV and AIDS in the 80s? I I find it such a bizarre comparison, and I'm glad he apologized. And I'm mentioning it here not just to denounce him, but as something of a teachable moment. And then finally, I must announce the pizza delivery person at Angelo Bellini. We ordered pizza here, and I had just started recording the most recent edition of my podcast, which you can hear next week, where we delve into the Bonanno crime family. And I, the delivery guy called right as I was beginning the conversation. And I asked him verbally and via text to please just leave the pizza with the delivery guy. So the guy waits there for 20 or 30 minutes. And then leaves. What do you mean, door guy? Right, what did I say? You said the delivery guy. Right, so I asked him to leave it in the lobby. And um, he didn't leave it in the lobby. He just left. So I found that was a total abdication of uh, his responsibilities as a pizza delivery person. I don't know how you can just leave with the pizza. He had it here. Why wouldn't he just leave it? Made no sense to me. By the way, Miss M, who is an astute observer of this program, emails me. She claims that Spotify is saying that Joe Rogan removed these podcast episodes himself. 
and that they didn't remove it. Now, if that's the case, then I will withdraw my denunciation of of Spotify. So there you have it. Thankfully, Spotify, you had Miss M looking out for you. Hopefully, maybe you give her a numerology podcast somewhere along the line. Hey, uh, we're going to talk about whether or not we're living in a simulation. Are you? Does it matter? How would you change? We'll explore it straight ahead. WABC. Well, one question that has been asked since the dawn of time, is this the real life? In fact, I think there was even a Queen song that had that as a prominent lyric. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There's a couple of really, really fascinating things going on right now. One, we are seeing tremendous innovation in computer technology, which is making virtual reality Uh, realistic virtual reality, not a thing of the future, not a thing to aspire to, but a thing of the present. And every day, it seems, there's a different story about how virtual reality and the metaverse is reshaping the world that we're in. There was a story just last week about a woman who claimed that she was actually gang raped in the metaverse, and she wants those people charged. Well, uh, what if we're already living in virtual reality? What would that mean? What would that change? Nothing? Or everything. Well, someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about some of those questions, writing and providing answers to some of those questions, is David Chalmers. He's a professor of philosophy and neuroscience and the co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at New York University. He's also the author of a couple of books, including Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds, and the Problems of philosophy. Very, very excited to welcome David Chalmers. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, thanks, Frank. It's great to be here. So I am interested in the work that you do, but I am also pretty interested in your life journey. I I know that you taught yourself uh, computers and computer programming at the age of 10, and that you apparently had your first experience in a virtual world all the way back in 1976, a time when I think most people didn't even realize that was still a thing. How did you access a virtual world back in 1976? Yeah, well, I was at I was 10 years old. I was at my father's work. He's a uh, he's a medical researcher. Uh, in a, this was back in Australia where I grew up, Adelaide, Australia, and they had a bunch of computers uh, sitting around. They had a big computer lab connected to a giant mainframe. It was even before the era of the personal computer. But I got on that machine and started looking around to see what was what. And I saw something called Advent. And Advent was short for adventure. So I just got in there and I ran the Advent program. And it turned out to be a program called Colossal Cave Adventure. Just a, It was just a text program. There were no graphics, but you could give it commands like go north, go south, uh, pick up the uh, the suitcase, fight with the giant, and you know it was actually it was a predecessor of today's video games and today's virtual worlds. Even though no text, no graphics. Actually, it was the very first text adventure game. Turns out 
I didn't know any of this, but Colossal Cave, 1976, was one of the very first virtual worlds. Was that a game changer for you in terms of your thinking about this stuff, or did you experience it, enjoy it, and then just go about your life as it was? I think it probably was a probably was a slow burn. I suddenly didn't it didn't suddenly turn me into a philosopher who thought about virtual worlds. But you know, um, my whole life I've been into science fiction that explores these ideas. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke talks about simulated worlds at some point. When by the time that the or Doctor Who, even back in the 1970s, I was a Doctor Who fan. They had some episodes where they had uh, where they all go into a virtual world and you know by the time the matrix came around in 1999 I was well and truly ready to think philosophically about oh my god what are the, what are these new artificial realities it's difficult to imagine that the matrix which still seems so futuristic and so new is now 23 years old i know they just came out with a new matrix these days but a whole generation has now grown up knowing of the matrix for people that haven't seen the film or don't remember it because they haven't seen it in a couple of decades basically the premise is what we know as the real world what we know as base reality is not it's a computer simulation and then um, uh, Keanu Reeves's character, Neo, is sort of pulled into the real world by Lawrence Fishburne to, you know, rescue the real world from all these horrible, uh, horrible people. And when Lawrence Fishburne pulls Keanu Reeves out of the Matrix, he essentially says, Welcome to the real world. You did some writing and a lot of commentary around the time that The Matrix uh, came out. What was your analysis of that film from a philosopher from a philosopher's perspective? Yeah, you know, it turns out that the uh, the Wachowski sisters are super interested in uh, in philosophy. I never actually met them and talked talked to them, but the production company uh, basically commissioned a bunch of essays by philosophers to go on their. Uh, their website. And just around this time, I'd been starting to think about these issues, initially thinking about, you know, brains in vats and computer simulations. But yeah, part of the idea was, yeah, could this be happening uh, to us? But another key part of the idea is just say we are in a matrix. Just say we are in a simulated world. What does that mean? Is that real? Some people say if we're in a simulated world, then everything is an illusion. Whereas I wanted to say, actually, not so fast. It could be that we're in a matrix. It could be we're in a simulated world, but it doesn't mean everything is an illusion. Like there's still New York is still here. People are still here. The Empire State Building is still here, even if we're in the matrix. It just turns out it's all digital. But being digital is not a way of being an illusion. Being digital is still perfectly real. So I'm going to say, okay, the matrix may suck. I'm not saying the matrix is good. The machines are controlling us and manipulating us in all kinds of ways. But I don't want to say it's uh, but I still want to say in a certain sense, it's real. So uh, what you're saying is, even if all of what we know is reality, the microphone that I'm speaking into, the coffee that I'm drinking, the clothes that I'm wearing, if none of that is real uh, or or if none of that is what we believe it to be, if it's all just some uh, computer simulation that's digitally created, if we are living in the matrix, if my body, uh, if it actually exists, is actually plugged into a computer somewhere and my brain is just being fed these images, what you're saying and a hallmark of your work as a philosopher is that these virtual worlds are no less real than if this was the real world. 
Yeah, I want to say it's it can still be perfectly real. Maybe it's a created world, like maybe the uh, the machines created it. So maybe it's like second in line. But I don't think that's any different from, say, a scenario where you have God up in heaven creating our universe as a um, as a kind of copy of heaven. Just say God does that. That doesn't mean this isn't real. It just means it's not the original. So I think basically you can think of, you know, if there's a computer simulation, there's a simulator who set it up. They're kind of like the God of the simulation. If we're in a simulation, uh, this simulator created our world. And, yeah, they created our world as a digital world made of, you know, basically digital processes on a computer. But I don't think, yeah, I think digital processes are still perfectly real. It's like in physics, some physicists entertain the idea that underneath the analog level of physics is some kind of digital level. If we're in a simulation, that's what the world is like. But I want to say, still real, you're still having perfectly meaningful, you can still have a perfectly meaningful life inside the matrix, inside a simulation, inside a virtual reality. In terms of, and you've given, uh, I think, all of us a lot to think about with the sentence that you just said, we've, I think a lot of us have played video games before. And, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers, for instance, Mario is controlled by the buttons that I'm pushing on a controller. He hops on a mushroom. He breaks bricks with his head. He uh, jumps down a plunger. And I'm controlling, uh, the, you know, all of Super Mario's actions with my uh, touching of buttons on a Nintendo controller. Can virtual beings, can beings that are created virtually, like a Super Mario, like a Sonic the Hedgehog, like more advanced um, uh, virtual creations for, for video games or computer simulations, do you believe that those virtual beings can develop independent consciousness? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned, like, say, Super Mario, because uh, that's basically an avatar for you that you control these characters inside video games that you control they're kind of like your digital body um you in that case you are controlling them mario is uh is conscious because you are you're uh you're controlling him this is what you know in video games we distinguish player characters from non-player characters the player characters are the ones like mario that are uh you know some human being is actually controlling them where it gets really interesting is non-player characters. I don't know if you saw that movie came out last year, Free Guy? Uh, no, it's on my list because it's nominated for an Oscar, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And uh, not just for the philosophical implications of it, but uh, I'm told it's actually a pretty decent film. Yeah, it's really good. And actually, it's all about non-player characters in a video game. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is, is there living in this world at the beginning. It turns out he's just one of the non-player characters he's a bank teller going through a loop in order that players come in can come in and turn on their mayhem but at a certain point he realizes all this oh my god um i'm a non-player character in a video game but he gets some artificial intelligence so he becomes conscious and then the question comes up is all this real and uh his best friend says to him look i'm sitting here with my best friend trying to help him get through a tough time if that's not real I don't know what is. So um, I love it. I, I like the way this movie illustrates how life in a video, in a virtual world can still be totally real. Uh, I, I am going to check that out, actually. I was planning on it anyway, but uh, uh, from a technological perspective and a philosophy perspective, your answer is yes. 
you do think that virtual, what you refer to as non-player characters, can develop an independent consciousness? Yeah, definitely. I think eventually. Right now, probably the non-player characters we have in video games right now, they're very simple algorithms, you know, a few lines of code. Uh, they're probably not conscious. But, but fast forward a, two or three decades to when we have human-level artificial intelligence, but the AI is advancing super fast right now with what they call deep learning. If you get machines that can learn to be as intelligent as a human being in their behavior, I would say there's no obstacle to them being conscious too. It's not like biology is special and silicon is out. That's a kind of biochauvinism. Mm. Only a biological being can be conscious. I don't see why in principle digital being in a virtual world couldn't be conscious too. We're talking with David Chalmers. He is a professor of philosophy and neural science at NYU, and he's uh, written a book where he explores a variety of these subjects. It's called Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Now, uh, a, a very big name in the tech sector is Elon Musk. He's involved in cars. He's involved in space. He's involved in cryptocurrencies. He's involved in anything that people consider futuristic. And he's spent a great deal of time thinking about and speaking about whether or not we might actually be living in a simulation. This is a question that was posed to Elon Musk a few years ago on this subject, and this is what he said in response. And I mean, like the, the, the strongest argument for, the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Um, that that 40, called 40, 40 years ago, we had Pong, like two rectangles and a dot. That right. was what games were. Um, now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. Mm-hmm. And soon we'll have virtu- you know, vir- virtual reality, we'll have augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just in- indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is right now. Um, then you just say, okay, well, well let's imagine it's a 10,000 years in the future, uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. Um, so, um, so, so given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be, you know, billions of such, uh, you know, computers and set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. So Tell me what's wrong with that argument. Is the answer yes? <laughs> the argument is probably... I mean, I just like, is there, is there a flaw in that argument? I mean, someone, but someone... I'm not that, sure what but, the error... In, right, no, no, the argument makes sense. So the assumption then is that somebody beat us to it, and this is a game. No, no, there's a one in billions chance that this is base reality. Oh, okay. What do you think? Well, I think it's one in billions. Okay. David, do you agree with Elon Musk's uh, analysis of the situation there? Do you think that th- that it's likely, uh, especially as Elon Musk describes it there, overwhelmingly likely, that we're actually living in a computer simulation rather than base reality? Um sympathetic with the thought. I would not go as far as Elon Musk goes to say that it's overwhelmingly likely. But I think there is an interesting thought behind this, which is that, you know, simulation technology is getting better and better. 
eventually we will have these indistinguishable simulations, indistinguishable from physical reality. And it could well be that there are many more simulations than non-simulations. So if there are 90, if there are 100 times more simulations than non-simulations, and they all had consciousness like mine, then you'd say, well, the odds that I'm one of the simulations is only, you know, one in, the odds that I'm unsimulated would only be one in 100 or so. And I think there's a couple of places you can get off the bus with this argument. First, this argument assumes that simulated systems will have conscious experience like us. I'm sympathetic with that, you know, as I was saying, but I can't claim to be certain of it. Consciousness is something we don't really understand right now. And the other, the other thing it assumes is that once we're actually able to create those simulated universes, then we will create them, or people, other civilizations will create them. And I don't know. I can't be certain about that. Maybe we'll decide it's a bad idea to create these simulations. Maybe we'll decide it's monstrously unethical to play God and create simulated worlds like that. So if we don't create those simulations, then, you know, then the argument won't go through. But still, I'm inclined to think 50% that you can, you, you can create them and 50% that someone will. So that gives me like just back-of-the-envelope calculation. Maybe 25% chance that most beings are simulated. 25% chance we could be in a simulation ourselves. Now, I'd like to think that I think independently and am certainly conscious and am making my own decisions. And I have spent a great deal of time thinking what it means if I'm actually not a biological being and I'm actually a a computer simulation. Why would someone, be it a biological being or a computer or anybody, why would someone go to the trouble of creating a computer simulation in which the people in it, people like me, people like you, people like the people listening, are are self-aware and can make their own decisions? Yeah, well, why do, uh, why do we make computer simulations now? Sometimes for uh, you know, scientific purposes, we create giant simulations of the oceans or the climate or the cosmos. Sometimes for entertainment purposes, we uh, run a simulation of history to see how it goes. Sometimes for decision-making processes, uh, we want to, uh, to figure out you know, what's going to happen in the future. Maybe it's marketing, maybe it's an election. So I can imagine all those being reasons. Maybe they want to simulate history a thousand times over with different parameters and see what happens. That could be science. Maybe it's entertainment. They want to watch their ancestors and, uh, and bring it all to life. Maybe it's decision-making in, uh, in the Black Mirror in an episode of Black Mirror, couples routinely run simulations of themselves going on, going on dates, going on relationships to see if they're compatible. So I guess those are some possible reasons. Now, you might say it's monstrous to be doing that and creating conscious beings, but people have done monstrous things before. It, for it, it's certainly possible, I guess, that we could be living in a computer simulation which would be projecting and monitoring what would life have been like if, uh, say, Donald Trump had been elected president in 2016 or Joe Biden had been elected president in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Instead of this boring world that we live in where Hillary Clinton <laughs> was elected in 2016, just say the simulators got really weird on us and tried to run a simulation where Who's the who's like the most way out hypothesis we can imagine for who was who was elected in 2016? Let's make it Donald Trump and let's see if the people will just accept that and like buy that this is reality. And 
I think they slipped it past us. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that you're familiar with the the Mandela effect. I've talked about it on the air before, but uh, essentially, for people that may not have heard me talking about it, the Mandela effect is mass misremembering of facts. Uh, different people who don't know one another all misremember the same thing the same way. It's called the Mandela effect because apparently there's all sorts of people that remember Nelson Mandela dying years ago. The same could be said, I think, of uh, Desmond Tutu. Uh, The same could be said with whether or not the uh, Monopoly guy has a monocle or whether or not Curious George has a tail or the the peanut butter. The Berenstain Bears? Right. Uh, I could have passed a lie detector that these bears were called the Berenstain Bears, not the Berenstain Bears. Uh, there have been some people that have said that that Mandela effect could be evidence of a computer simulation and a glitch in the programming. Do you subscribe to that at all? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. That's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is just like, yeah, people, people's memories are highly fallible. Likewise, people say, ah, you know, people, you know, some people seriously say Donald Trump is evidence that we're, that this is a glitch in the simulation or, uh, there's an article in the uh, the New Yorker a few years ago when they had a uh, when they messed everything up at the Oscars one night. It's like ah, the Oscar you know, the Best Picture Awards, Moonlight and La La Land at the end of the night. I said this is proof we're in a simulation. Well, maybe, but maybe it's just a proof that even in uh, even in ordinary reality, you should expect unexpected things to happen from time to time. So I guess I don't find it strong evidence, but who's to say if it's a simulation, it might be a glitchy one. <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, another philosopher named uh, Dr. Preston Green wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said that um, we might be living in a computer simulation and we might not, but it doesn't make any sense for us to try to find out because if we do find out that we're living in a computer simulation, maybe whosoever simulation this is could um, could pull the plug and it would not work out well for those of us that are in the simulation if we become aware that we're you know simulated and i was reminded at the time of a a star trek the next generation episode from over 30 years ago that i've never forgotten uh where a hologram a digital creation essentially learns that he's a hologram and he wonders what that means for his own existence and he's talking to some of the real humans in in that world tell me something dix you're gone will this world still exist Will my wife and kids still be waiting for me at home? I honestly don't know. David, from your perspective, do you agree with that, that it doesn't make sense for us to find out if this is a simulation? Well, I guess it all depends what the simulator's purposes are and what their constraints are. If they're just trying, if their whole point is to see if we can figure out we're in a simulation, then, yeah, maybe we figure it out, that's the end of history. On the other hand, maybe they're just, you know, setting up the simulation, let it run, and then they're just not even watching, and they'll just pick up all the statistics in the morning to uh, to see what happens. You know, another s- scenario you might worry about, though, is just say we start creating simulated universes of our own. That's going to take so much computer power that you might think, okay, at that point we're going to be stretching the uh, stretching the computer power of the uh, of the computers in the next level up that the simulators are using. It's going to be a massive energy bill for them maybe at some point we might like you know we might overload their computers and then they would uh, then they would halt or at least slow down the simulation so some people say we should be careful in creating virtual reality technology ourselves
It, speaking of creating virtual reality technology ourselves, it seems like that is going full speed ahead. Facebook has changed their whole company's name to Meta. Uh, that is short for Metaverse. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, developing a Metaverse city um, com- complete with you know addresses that are in real life and people can uh, buy their address in this Metaverse. Where is t- technology now, assuming we are living in base reality, where is technology now with respect to virtual reality and that uh, and uh, and that whole realm? I'd say it's still early days and it's still primitive in some ways, but it is moving fast. You know, uh, just the last 10 years or so, these virtual reality headsets have become accessible for consumers through companies like Oculus, which is owned by Facebook or Meta. You know, the Oculus Quest 2, that's a pretty good uh, headset. I've got one I use myself pretty often. That's just $300. Anyone can, uh, can buy one and experience a virtual world. That said, they're still pretty clunky. You know, you've got to put on this giant geeky headset that's pretty heavy and uh, makes you look pretty weird. But a lot of people think that, that the coming form factor is going to be something more like glasses. Once we get it into uh, like a glasses form factor where you can see uh, a virtual world around you, that'll be more acceptable. But there's also augmented reality where you know, virtual objects get projected into the physical world around you, too. And I think probably it's 10 years off until that technology Mm. is starting to get really good. But it is coming. As it stands now, whether it's the goggles that you have or similar technology that might be on the way, how do people enter the metaverse with their avatar? Let's say you have those Oculus goggles, and pardon my ignorance on this, but I I don't have a lot of experience utilizing virtual reality myself. Is there a software? Is there an app? What do you do to actually enter a virtual reality world? Yeah, it's a little bit like with a smartphone. There's a whole bunch of apps. You strap this headset over your head, you, uh, you turn it on, and suddenly you see a few, uh, you, maybe you're in a nice little scene in the mountains, but you can call up various screens, and one of those screens is basically like an app store or an app list, like on your smartphone, and you can op- open up a video game. If you want to play a video game, you can open up a meditation or an exercise app, if that's what you want to do, or you could open up, you know, Facebook's uh, virtual world is one called Horizon, Horizon Worlds. You can open up Horizon Worlds and then go in and hang out in that social space with other people. So every week, I've actually got a weekly meeting with a bunch of friends around the world, philosophers into VR, and we just you know meet up in a different space like that every week. Actually, the hardest part every week is coordinating on getting into that same space in virtual world together. That always that always takes 10, 15 minutes. But after we do that, then yeah, I'm in an avatar, they're in an avatar. We can stand around, we can talk. We can uh, we can play a game. Someone can give a lecture, and it's like kind of like a real social space happening, you know, inside a room or inside a beautiful natural location, all inside a virtual world. I, it, I did give some thought to this around the time of the pandemic last year, when people were not able to spend holidays with extended family. How nice it would be to be able to do so virtually without having to worry about contracting the coronavirus or or something. Uh, So, I mean, there are a lot of uh, applicable use cases where you could see the benefit of this. Do you think Facebook's embrace is a sort of a game changer when it comes to the metaverse? It's certainly got a whole lot of people interested in it right now, and it's made for a whole lot of excitement 
and Hype and Microsoft is getting behind the metaverse too. Apple is said to be developing their own uh, VR goggles and, uh, and headsets, although without using the word metaverse for them. I don't know to what extent it's a game changer. My sense is possibly it's a bit premature. Um, a lot of people think, okay, Facebook had all these difficulties coming with uh, whether it was regulators or, uh, or downturns in, their, in the use of social media. So this is like where they want to go in the future. I do suspect it's, you know, they're probably getting a little bit ahead of themselves. I think we're probably going to have two or three good years of metaverse hype with uh, Apple coming through and Google coming through. Um, Microsoft is doing it too. But it wouldn't surprise me if that's followed by a metaverse downturn for, you know, another, uh, another three or four years until, you know, maybe in 10 years. Um, it'll actually be a mature technology. It could be a little bit niche before that, but it is very cool to uh, to see all the activity that's being devoted to thinking about it right now. Well, there's also a lot of possible drawbacks, right? I mean, we have seen problems in American society with things like uh, sloth, with, with things like uh, an increase in obesity, a decline in physical activity, uh, a decline in in-person interactions, things like in-person uh, sporting events and, and things of that nature. Is there a problem, is there a potential that the uh, prevalence of the metaverse would exacerbate those problems from where you're standing? Yeah, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely potential. I think there's potential for a lot of good and potential for a lot of bad. Yeah, with health, it's like, okay, if we got too obsessed, we could neglect our physical body. On the other hand, a lot of people actually, turns out, are using VR right now for exercise, for workout. Put yourself in a really cool location, and you can you know, dance to a virtual, uh, virtual beat and uh, you know, go through all kinds of exercises with an amazing instructor right there. So, yeah, there are downsides and, and upsides. I also want, worry about the metaverse where corporations are controlling everything, where it's all meta or Apple or Google controlling these virtual worlds. I mean, just like me, you think these virtual worlds are all real. It's kind of like having corporations control, you know, everything around you. Sure. The world that you're, uh, that you're in. And do we want corporations to have that degree of control? I mean, it's bad enough when they're manipulating our newsfeed on social media. But, you know, think about the privacy and manipulation issues then. So, you know, I hope it's possible for there to be some kind of open metaverse that users can control and govern to a considerable extent. But, you know, it's easy to be pessimistic. Yeah, oh, well, that's for sure. I mean, if you look at uh, people that get banned for social media for expressing certain content, if you look at the apps that get banned from certain platforms because they're thought to be promoting negative content, if you look at the whole debate about Spotify, uh, do you really want these people making decisions about a digital universe? Uh, my answer is is certainly no. And uh, I think uh, once we've got the philosophical aspect of things figured out, we probably need to start worrying about the, the legal implications of that as well. Uh, let me ask you about your book, Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. What are people going to learn in this book? What is this book going to lead them to think about? Yeah, well, it's all about the ideas we've been, uh, we've been talking about. You know, roughly the first half of the book is all about the simulation hypothesis, this idea that we could be in a simulation like the Matrix. And I try and argue both. It's a hypothesis. It's kind of a bad news, good news aspect of that. Bad news, we could be in a simulation. But uh, good news, if, we're, if we are in a simulation, everything is still perfectly real. It's not an illusion. And then in the second half, I apply all that to thinking about the metaverse, coming 
virtual reality technology. And there is kind of the, the same thought. This metaverse is coming. A lot of people think that's an illusion or a hallucination. It's just a fiction. It's escapism. I want to say no. That's, that's real. Those virtual worlds you hang out with, uh, you hang out in in the metaverse, um, that's all real. The relationships you have in the metaverse are real relationships. So I want to say you can actually lead a meaningful life there. So I guess, I, you know, I think it was kind of a potentially a positive message. Everyone wants to say it's all dystopian, these virtual worlds. We're all going to be, uh, you know, we're all going to be locked up like in the, uh, the matrix out of touch with reality. I want to say, well, once you think about it philosophically, this is just another level of reality. And you can be, you know, in touch with the digital reality of a virtual world, and that can be just as meaningful to you. Final two questions. One, it sounds like um, my, my the beginning of my one of the beginning premises that of our discussion was: should we be behaving differently if it's determined that this is a virtual world rather than base reality? And I guess it, it's clear based on the last twenty five minutes of our discussion, the answer to that is no. We shouldn't be behaving differently. Maybe a few differences here and there. You know, if, if I know that we're in a simulation. I'm going to start asking questions like, hey, well, is there some possibility that, you know, there could be life after death if the simulators uplift our code? What are they going to be their criteria for doing that? I might try and start communicating with the, uh, the simulators. I mean, it's kind of like discovering there's a God. Right, and praying. There. Yeah, that would probably affect your life in some ways. Sure. But at a deeper level, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to change everything about how you're living your life. You can still have your relationships, your family, your work. Your, uh, your play, you can still go to football games on the weekend and so on. It's like, you know, life goes on because it's still all perfectly real. Uh, finally, the new Matrix film. Have you seen it? And if you have, is it worth seeing? Now, I thought it started really well. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but at the beginning, there's, there's an amazing idea of like a video game of the Matrix, and we're thinking about simulations within simulations, and it's... Uh, they're poking fun at the idea. It's actually the first half an hour or so is very rich philosophically. I'd say by the end, it's, it's kind of it's fallen back into just the kind of familiar themes from the uh, from the early movies, and no longer quite as exciting. Still very diverting and very enjoyable, but I still think yeah, the first Matrix movie is is a definitive work of philosophy, if you ask me. That really illustrates the idea that you know we could be in a simulated world. The sequels have never really come quite close to, to matching it, but hey, they're still. An enjoyable two hours in the movies. I I, uh, I I would I haven't seen the new the new one yet, but I certainly agree with your philosophy of the of the first one. Uh, David, I wish you the best of luck with the book. I want to encourage everybody that's interested in these subjects to check it out. Again, it's called Reality Plus: Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. I do hope you'll come back. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I've learned a lot. Sure, I'd love to. Great talking to you, Frank. Thank you. It's David Chalmers. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, whether this is a virtual world or a biological one, I will take your phone calls in just a moment at 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Or am I? Straight ahead. WABC.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So I was, um, when I came home yesterday, I look after our son for a couple hours while my wife gets some sleep, and uh, I was changing him, and I laid him down. We have uh, an ottoman that basically doubles as a coffee table as well. It's a it's a storage ottoman. You'd store things in there, and it's it's really neat. It's an essential piece of furniture. This is the one to third residence that I've had this piece of furniture in, and uh, I uh, really it's been great. Had it since my my days living as a bachelor, and <clears throat> I put the baby um, on this ottoman as I was changing him on his diaper pad on his changing pad, and of course. Young Carmine, as soon as he gets put down, um, he spit up. Now, I did have a burp cloth behind his head to absorb some of his spit up, but there was so much spit up that it went beyond the burp cloth onto the ottoman. So I cleaned it up as best I could, but, you know, as best you can when you have a screaming child that you're trying to entertain. And then my wife gets up, and finally our, our child is in his swing. He's doing his swing thing. And it's, you know, right before I go to bed. So I'm having a glass of bourbon to uh, sort of fast track the the grogginess process. And especially now that I know melatonin's bad for you. So my wife comes down and she looks down at the ottoman and she says, what is this? What is this? What is this moisture? Did you spill whiskey on here? I said, no. I said, no, it's it's spit up. I mean, I cleaned it up and I used water and maybe that's part of the, the moisture. And she starts to clean it, and she says, I'm not going to clean it until after the big game on Sunday. Because we have people coming over for the big game, and I know more people are going to spill things. If you're one of those people coming over, don't spill anything. Let's show my wife. Let's teach her a lesson. Your influence counts, so use it. W-A-B-C. This is The Other Side of Midnight, our final hour together this week. Whenever this hour comes along, I always feel such tremendous pressure because there's always a list of subjects that I want to get to that I haven't gotten to for the week or for, you know, the morning. And I want to, you know, I want to get to them. So what we're actually going to do today is I'm going to throw out a, those of you that are holding, I will get to you. But um, I'm going to throw out a hodgepodge of talk topics, and you can comment on uh, what you want to what you want to comment on. You remember a Joe Crummy when he was on this show? You know, I wasn't the biggest fan of Joe Crummy. I thought his show was okay, but he would end either the show or the hour with a segment called "Stuff We Didn't Get To" and "Stuff We Did," and I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. I liked what he did. And I like the way that he put it out. This is going to be our version of stuff we didn't get to. All right. First, is there anybody that is more interesting to follow on social media than Charlie Sheen? 
Charlie Sheen is a phenomenal actor and a kind of a whack job. And uh, just, you, you know the history with Charlie Sheen. But one of the things that he does on social media, on Facebook specifically, is he puts out these questions. And I have um, taken a lot of great talk topics from just the questions that Charlie Sheen has put out. Uh, for instance, uh, he put out there uh, yesterday, would you rather have m- more money or more time? Why? Great, great talk topic. But he does stuff like that all the time. So last week, um, actually just five days ago, he put out a question that really caused me to think. And I don't know if he has help producing this social media page. Uh, I can't imagine it's just him. But whatever he's doing, it's working. He's doing a great job. And he put out this question. And it caused me to think, and I'm going to pose it to you. Those of you that are holding, don't worry, we'll get to you. Uh, Howard, Anonymous, Pamela, everybody. And I thought maybe it would cause you to think. What is a classic movie everyone has seen but you? 800-848-9222. What is a classic movie that everyone has seen but you? That's a question. A question. Since before your son burned hot in space... And before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I uh, was thinking about this, and I, I, I was trying to think what the answer was. So I've been looking through the AFI's Top 100 Years 100 Films list to see if I could uh, figure out what, you know, what classic films that everybody has seen that I haven't seen. And I think one has got to be, let's see, I've seen that, seen that, seen that. Uh, I've seen most of these. I've never seen, mm, 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 mm. I have never seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That is number 67 on the AFI's top 100 years, 100 films list. I have never seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? What's one, a classic film that everyone has seen that you haven't? Maybe it's The Godfather. Maybe it's Citizen Kane. Maybe it's Casablanca. Maybe it's Singing in the Rain. Maybe it's Gone with the Wind. A classic film that everyone has seen but you. Oh, one other one, by the way. I have this film at home, and, and this is an even better one than um, than the one that I just mentioned. I have never seen... And this is unbelievable even to me because I've had the film for years, but it's one of those things when you have it, you never get around to watching it. And I'm hoping we could – one, I thought it was kind of just a fun question to answer for yourself and to see what everybody else came up with. But if people are stuck home during the winter weekends and they're looking for something to do, maybe they'll check out one of these classic films or jogs their memory, encourage them, them to watch it. I have never seen – can you believe this? I can't even believe it. I've never seen Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia, and I know the story of T.E. Lawrence well, and uh, I'm a big fan of Peter O'Toole. I have never seen Lawrence of Arabia. What's your film? Is it Wizard of Oz? Is it Titanic? Is it Forrest Gump? Tell me. A classic film that you have never seen that everybody else seemingly has. 800 You have one, Matt? What is it? I, I have a lot. 
I'm mean, looking at mean, the. I'm looking mean, at the. I've never seen The Godfather. All you've the never way seen through. The Godfather all the way through. Well, no, I've seen it in parts. I have never understood that response to a question about did you see a movie? <laughs> Is I've seen. I, I've never seen all the way through. So what no, happens? I, You're watching the film and you said, "Oh, well, all right, I got to go catch a bus. Let me forget." Well, about here's it what happens. Move on with my life. And this has happened to me with movies that I have seen that I thought were really great. I'm like, I'm looking at the list. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Now I've seen that. Loved it as a kid. I started watching it a couple of years ago. I was bored. Really? And, and I think what happens with a movie like The Godfather, because it's been so hyped up over all the years, and then you watch it and you go, well, what's the big deal about this movie? All right. Well, we're gonna, we'll are gonna do a whole separate lesson on, on that. <laughs> uh, all right. And now, here's another interesting thing that I don't know got I, – I don't think this got nearly enough attention today. But we all know Alvin Bragg, right? Uh, Matt Blaze, even you know who Alvin Bragg is. Who is he? Who is he? The DA. DA in? In New York. New York County, specifically. Right, Manhattan. So here is the riddle of the day. Riddle me this. We all know, at least many of us know, that Alvin Bragg received a lot of funding for his election from a George Soros-backed group. I, I think Rudy Giuliani did a whole series of shows on this. John Gatzmatidis, same thing. Uh, the, the group is called Color of Change. Uh, they funded him in a Democratic primary, very competitive Democratic primary, uh, which is in Manhattan, tantamount to winning. Now, the Daily Mail reporting in an exclusive story yesterday. This is the riddle of the day. And look, there's no way to know it, but I want to hear your theories on this, because this is a show where we like conspiracy theories. There was, evidently, according to this Daily Mail article, a disturbing allegation made against the Manhattan DA, then-candidate, Alvin Bragg, during the primary election last spring. It's being reported by the DailyMail.com. The allegation was made by an unnamed woman. This unnamed woman made an allegation, and whatever the allegation was, caused color of change, the political action committee, backed by George Soros, to pull funding. Now, the group was just ramping up its efforts in May, reaching out to New York City woman, New York City voters, when a woman on the list made the allegation against Bragg. It threw a wrench into the pack that was just gearing up. The woman shared her allegation via text message, according to a source inside Color of Change. The group responded to her initial message, but did not receive any further communication. So she had no basis to evaluate. So they had no basis to evaluate the credibility of her allegation. So Color of Change, this George Soros group, ceased their independent expenditure on behalf of Alvin Bragg, Bragg told the DailyMail.com, the suggestion that I did something disturbing is patently false. Here's my question for you, and it's column A or column B kind of thing. What do you think Bragg did? If he didn't do anything, why is this coming out now? Now, I'll give you my theory on the second. My theory as to why they're coming out with what's a damaging story about him now, make no mistake about it, is because he's now talking about actually prosecuting violent crimes, armed robbery, uh, and all sorts of crimes that he initially said in his first memo wasn't going to be prosecuted. Now he's going to prosecute them, and the George Soros people that got him elected said, oh, yeah? 
oh, yeah, well, you want to start prosecuting crimes, we're going to start telling the truth about you. 800-848-9222. Question one. What's a classic film that everybody has seen that you haven't? For Matt Blaze, it's The Godfather. For me, it's Lawrence of Arabia. Question two. Alvin Bragg. What did he do to cause this George Soros group to back away from him? 800-848-9222. Item three. This is a fascinating story. And this is one of those stories that I can't believe that I didn't know. And I have researched it thoroughly. It is not an Internet rumor. This is confirmed. Matthew Broderick. We all know who Matthew Broderick is. He's in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a fine film. He was in The Cable Guy. He was in Godzilla. He was in Inspector Grit, Gadget, War Games. He's been in a lot of films. Saw them all. You saw all the Matthew Broderick films. Okay, well, good. I'm not sure we can count any of those as classics. But um, Matthew Broderick's films have certainly left a mark on Hollywood. And is he still married to Sarah Jessica Parker? I think he is. Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, So... And he was in The Producers. I saw the theatrical production of The Producers and the film The Producers. He was great in both. I'm a fan of his work. August 5th, 1987. Fresh off the heels of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Broderick and his girlfriend, an actress, his girlfriend, the actress Jennifer Grey, who was also in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, played his sister. Kind of weird that they ended up dating. But Jennifer Grey had just finished up working on Dirty Dancing. The two of them decided to go on a trip to Ireland together. Once they arrived in Northern Ireland, they rented a car, BMW. Broderick was driving along a country road 80 miles west of Belfast when he swerved into the wrong lane and collided with a Volvo. The driver of the vehicle, 28-year-old Anna Gallagher, and her mother... 63-year-old Margaret Doherty were killed instantly. Matthew suffered a fractured leg and an injury to his ribs. Jennifer was mostly unhurt, walked away from the accident with a few bruises. The police determined that Matthew had not been drinking at the time of the accident, and they charged him with causing death by dangerous driving, a charge that could have resulted in up to five years in prison. But instead, Broderick was convicted of the lesser crime, of reckless driving, and his punishment was a $175 fine. The victim's family called this a travesty of justice. In 2002, Matthew said he would fly to Ireland soon to personally make amends to the family, but as of this date, from what we can tell, he has failed to live up to his promise, and in in the years to follow, both Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey claim to no longer have any recollection of the incident. Did you know that Matthew Broderick killed two people? Now, again, there's no suggestion that this was intentional. Matthew Broderick killed two people and got away with a $175 fine. Now, that's something. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. Lastly, is this lastly or do I have one more item that I was going to bring to your attention here? Uh, eh, that's the last one that I'll mention. Okay. Um, lastly, there is bipartisan legislation that boosts the U.S. Postal Service and saves nearly $50 billion in the next decade. 
It is potentially set for a Senate vote by the end of next week. The bill called the Postal Service Reform Act passed the House overwhelmingly, 342 to 92. And the key parts of the bill include requiring postal employees to enroll in Medicare, which would cut down on premiums. And additionally, the U.S. Postal Service would no longer be required to pre-fund health benefits for its current and retiring employees, which would save them about $27 billion over the last 10 years. This bill ought to pass immediately. Um, There is no one that works harder than the men and women of the Postal Service. And a special shout-out to my mailman, Singh. But what Congress did to the post office about 17 years ago is nothing short of a travesty. They made it so that... You, the Postal Service had to prepay the retirements of future employees. Now, think of how crazy that is. Uh, there's not another agency in the world that has been forced to shoulder that kind of a burden. I'm not talking about paying the retirements of current retirees. I'm not talking about paying the retirements of current employees. I'm talking about prepaying the retirements of future employees and retirees and they had to put this money away it's been killing them so i am thrilled that is a bill that is long overdue and i am glad to see it the bill also implements a service performance transparency tool which would require the postal service to create an online dashboard with data on national and local level service to track delivery times all right 800-848-9222 item one What is a classic film that the whole world has seen that you haven't? Item two, Matthew Broderick killed two people and only had to pay a $175 fine. Item three, the Postal Service could soon be saved. Number four, Alvin Bragg, what did he do to cause this George Soros group to pull a half million dollars in funding from his campaign. And the corollary to that question is why is it coming out now? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Those of you that are already on hold, you're grandfathered in. You can comment on whatever it is you wanted to comment on. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello. Oh, uh, I was hoping that the last three years was virtual reality, and I've been waiting for a switch up to a new one. Uh, so you you uh, so I, I, are you being um, a little funny, or did you really think that we might be living in a computer simulation? Well, it's been so bizarre that it would not shock me <laughs> to to find out, like a Twilight Zone episode, that it was a virtual reality, and I would be very pleased if it was a total re- virtual reality and. We could switch to a new scene. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, who knows what that would mean for us, Pamela? Maybe that would mean you and I would no longer have our consciousness. Uh, thank you, Pamela. It's funny. I referenced that uh, that op-ed that Dr. Preston Green had written, and I remember interviewing Preston Green a couple of years ago when he wrote that. And his contention, as I said to David Chalmers, was if we're in a computer simulation and we bother to find out about it, then that could have disastrous consequences because if people are observing us, then, you know, the experiments ruined. If we become aware that we're all just digital creations of a computer, I don't know. I thought Elon Musk's comments were very interesting that there's the odds are billions to one 
that this is base reality. I found that very interesting. 800-848-9222. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. How are you, Frank? I actually called about something else. I actually, there's a man on uh, Saturday, on, his name is uh, Louis Manfredini, and he, he, specializes, he specializes in in home repairs. He's a genius. Yes, I have heard him. He is a bright guy. Absolutely. Very he has some great ideas. I would suggest if you have to do any work around the house to speak to him. Yeah, I, I don't know him. I'm sure I can get his number from somebody around here, but that's a good idea. He's got a great reputation. And additionally, one more thing. I uh, want to support that other gentleman who spoke before about seeing parts of movies. When I was in the Army, I was stationed Fort Shafter in Hawaii, and I worked I worked in generals' houses, and I always got – I worked – I was clean. You know, I had to wash the dishes in generals' houses, and uh, I always got out late, so I always saw the second half of movies because the company clerk had a part-time job in the movie theater. <laughs> ah, I see. All right, well, I'll accept that as a more ready excuse than, uh, than Matt Blaze has. So answer my initial question, Howard. What's a classic film that everybody has seen that you've never seen? The, the Lawrence of Arabia. You've never seen that one either. Okay, well, maybe if we'll do a if we do a Lawrence of Arabia film festival. Uh, see, the problem is it's so long. But if we do a Lawrence of Arabia film festival, we'll invite you. We'll see it together. And let me say hello to Anonymous calling from Brooklyn. Hello, Anonymous. Morning, Frank. Um, Morning. Uh, I have to say, I'm disappointed that the that the best radio station in New York, your station, is going to give this pedophile, speaking of Wiener, uh, a chance to, uh, to, to tune up. I'm not happy he's going to be, to get attention and press. I only hope that the show bombs, you know. Uh, so needless to say, you will not be listening. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I may or may not. Uh, hoping it bombs. I've had some bad nightmares and uh, intrusive thoughts over this stuff, and I see, hear, and smell things, and I'm worried that the kids, that the children that were abused by this guy will, will see him on, like, ads and stuff like that. And they're giving him a platform to, um, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it basically, you said he was in therapy for two and a half years, I think you said. And uh, I've been in therapy for over 20, and I got a lot of issues, believe me, and I'm not done. And I just, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to cancel this guy. But, you know, maybe it would be better if um, he took a job where nobody sees him, nobody knows anything about him, and he'll become irrelevant. Well, know? I'll be honest with you, Anonymous. I don't think – thank you for the call. I don't think he can do that. I think the guy has an obsession with being in the public eye, uh, for better or worse. And uh, I don't think he could take a job uh, where he's totally obscure. I think there's something ingrained within him that needs to – perform for the public. And it's funny, um, you know, he talked a little bit about that in his interview yesterday with uh, with Arthur Idala. And I thought, um, you know, th- there were parts where I-, I found what he was saying very sympathetic, and there were parts where I found it very nonsensical. So I'm interested to see how he withstands to the blistering cross-examination of the WABC audience Saturday from uh, from 2 to 4. If you're just tuning in, Anthony Weiner and Curtis Sliwa will be co-hosting a new show, uh, Left versus Right, the Saturday edition, from 2 to 4 p.m. Curtis is still going to work with Christopher Hahn on Sundays from 2 to 4 p.m. as well. 800-848-9222. Veronica is in Manhattan. Hello, Veronica. 
Hi. Hi. Yes? Yes. Hello. Are you ready for my good comment? I hope so. Okay, a movie I have never seen and seems like everybody else has is Star Wars. You've never seen Star Wars? None of it. Wow. <laughs> now, what were you doing in 1977 while the whole world right. was seeing Star Wars? Well, in the previous year, I was getting married. In that year, I was having a baby. Ah, well, and that'll do it. <laughs> it did for a while. And then I can't, I don't like seeing newer movies if I haven't seen all the movies that went before. But w- were you ever curious to go out and get the tape and see what all the fuss was about? No, I don't like technology that much. So, no, I, yeah, I, I was because Reagan mentioned it. That that was my mostly. Because who mentioned it? Ronald Reagan. Oh, Reagan! Right, 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 right. Well, yes, that that was the basis for the uh, star, the uh, missile right. defense system. There, thank you, Veronica. All right, never seen Star Wars. That's on par with uh, Matt Blaze never having seen The Godfather, in my view. So far, still no theories about what became, what happened with Alvin Bragg. 800-848-9222. You know, I am interested to see, I'm not surprised at all about the reaction from the listenership regarding Anthony Weiner tomorrow, but I am interesting to see, I'm interested to see all of the conservative talk show hosts that we have on WABC uh, Bernard McGurk, Brian Kilmeade, Greg Kelly, Bill O'Reilly's more independent, but he, you know, I would say he does lean right. Uh, Mark Levin. I am interested to see if any, but Larry Kudlow. I don't think this will happen, but I'm interested to see if anybody says, well, I won't be on the same station as as Anthony Weiner. I'm, I'm, uh, that's it. If Wiener's on the station, I'm not going on. And they refuse to come on. Um, I don't think that anybody anybody will do that, or as they call it in the business, pulling a Neil Young. But I am reminded of a story that took place in March of 1996. You remember what happened in March of 1996 at this radio station? At the time, Alan Dershowitz had a syndicated radio show. And we were airing two hours of it on uh, on Sunday nights. He was on Sunday night from 10 p.m. to midnight. And there was a discussion of racism. And a caller called in and took Alan Dershowitz to task for uh, having appeared on the Bob Grant show in the past. And Dershowitz's response was, you're absolutely right. Bob Grant is a racist. Bob Grant is a bigot. He's a despicable talk show host. And I agree with that. And that's why we have to keep talking about these subjects. Now, Phil Boyce, the program director here at WABC at the time, who was brand new in his job, less than a year, he he basically put out a statement that said Bob is not a racist, not a bigot, and not a despicable talk show host. What he is saying about Bob is wrong, so I'm not going to tolerate that. And he fired Dershowitz, where he pulled Dershowitz's show off the air. Uh, It wasn't, you know, it was a syndicated show. It was on about 50 stations. But he pulled Dershowitz's show. And then Dershowitz was not at all happy with Phil's decision. He said ABC is using the excuse that one talk show host shouldn't insult the other one, but that's as phony as a $3 bill because he, meaning Grant, started up on me, and he didn't get any reprimand for calling me names. And then he goes on to say, but the big point is that I'm not going to be censored about my views about a racist talk show host. 
I think it's crucially important that the public know who Bob Grant is, and I'm going to continue to tell the public who Bob Grant is. If ABC doesn't want their listeners to hear it, I guess that's their prerogative. I am interested to see how the rest of the lineup reacts to Anthony Weiner. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello. Yeah, hiya, Frank. I I would like to say that when the post office or the, the, they had this law years ago, uh, the main intent of that law was to whittle away the employees' benefits. It reminds me of the uh, the Simpsons animation where where the head of the nuclear plant got all the employees together and told them that he was cutting out their medical benefits. And, uh, and well, yeah, I, I remember that. That's actually a very good episode. Uh, that's with the the dental plan, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was. About, yeah, I guess it was the medical. Well, I said the medical plan. Yeah, but I think it was the dental plan. A, but he said he was cutting out the uh, <clears throat> the medical benefits, and uh, and he and he took off like he had his assistant on that bicycle. <laughs> they got. He got on, and all the employees were after him. I remember. I remember yeah. well. Thank well, you, Tom. That's exactly what happened in the post office. They said, "Well, we're just going to cut out benefits," but they got to be. They had to do it in a sneaky way. Yeah. Uh, well, look. I am happy to see this bipartisan legislation. I hope it helps the post office thrive going forward. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Bragg, Broderick, Cinema. The Bragg, Broderick, Bogey, and What's a B with the Postal Service? I don't know. Baggage? No. Ba- I don't know. Um, parcel? No, I don't know. I can't come up with a, an alliteration that encompasses Boxes. all four. So- Boxes? That's not bad. Okay. Well, it's better than anything I came up with. Gordon is in Canada. Hello, Gordon. Hi, Frank. Uh, that's. I'm interested in that uh, Matthew Broderick story because I really enjoy his acting well i do too isn't that a wild story can you believe had you ever heard that story before never heard heard it uh, and i was just thinking when you mentioned his name uh that classic comedy uh i think it's called trip to wellness um the the road to wellville the road to wellville that that movie cracked me up it was uh, anthony hopkins was in that and that uh Comedian from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Dana Carvey. The... I don't think yeah. that. Um, I don't think that that is a, exactly considered a classic film that everybody has seen. I'll be honest, Gordon. I think if you mention the Road to Wellville to a hundred people, ninety of them would not have heard of it, let alone see it. Now, I happen to have seen it, and I haven't seen it in years, in decades, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, I remember, I remember being disappointed with it. I, I would like to watch it again now. Um, because I know a little bit more of the history and I'm a little bit, you know, I, I've matured in certain respects from when I first saw the film, but um, that is not a classic film. If you, Most people have never even heard of The Road to Wellville. And again, it's nothing against the stars of that film, but just people haven't seen it. So uh, I am wondering what else on this list you haven't seen, or not just this list, but just it doesn't have to be, you know, off any list. A classic movie that everybody has seen, like Forrest Gump or, I don't know, Schindler's List, Titanic. Something that everybody seemingly has seen, but not you. So far, we got Lawrence of Arabia. We've got The Godfather. We've got Star Wars. 
and uh, and a couple others. Curious if you have one. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. By the way, the Academy Award nominations have come out. I haven't seen anything this year yet. Anything that's nominated. I mentioned Free Guy or with David Chalmers earlier. That looks great with Ryan Reynolds. And it's nominated in one of the technical categories. I am looking forward to seeing that. I had heard it was good. And even Debbie, Debbie Schlussel gave it a good review, which is pretty rare, uh, that uh, she doesn't find some crypto-communist subplot within it. So, All right. Hey, you know what we're going to do next? We're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. Be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That is 1-800-848-WABC. And if you can... Answer 10 questions within 60 seconds. You will be the proud recipient of $1,000 American. Just be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Tony in Westchester. Hello, Tony. Hi. How's it going, Tony? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm great. So uh, have you heard this contest before, Tony? I have. Okay, so uh, you should be familiar with it, right? So I'm going to ask you 10 questions. If you get a question right, I'm just going to move on to the next one. And um, the timer will start after I ask the first question. We're going to go through these questions quickly. They're not too difficult, especially if you've listened to the show tonight. Uh, But uh, even if you haven't, you know, you still should be okay. Uh, Just don't get flustered, and um, we'll try and go through these. All right, you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right. How many letters are in the English alphabet? 27. No. There's 26 letters. Oh, 26. You're right. Oh, right from the get-go. I'm sorry, Tony. What did you think the 27th letter was? I don't know what I was thinking. All right. Well, it's okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you for participating. Uh, Tony seems like a nice lady. G- give her give her a consolation prize um, of some sort. I don't know that it's hat-worthy since she lost on the very first question, but uh, I don't know. We should give her something. Maybe give her a keychain or something, Ryan. Take her information, if you would, and uh, we'll send something. Uh, if you want to purchase a hat, you can go to the uh, WABCRadioStore.com. That's WABCRadioStore.com. They have a ton of stuff on there, fleece blankets and all sorts of other things on there. And uh, it is – I'm hearing from more and more of you that have been purchasing the drinkware, the mugs, the shirts. My mom got a shirt. I got a nice message from one of our listeners, Sal, who got a shirt. And um, a lot of people are are purchasing on there. We're going to go through, I think, assuming we're having our normal Friday morning meeting today, uh, I think we're going to go through the numbers at the WABC radio store. So if you order anything on there, I would just ask that you use the promo code, the discount code FRANK15. That'll get you a 15% discount. 
So search Morano, search the other side of midnight at WABCRadioStore.com. Use that promo code FRANK15 and you will save a 15% discount. Now, I uh, was really, really disappointed to hear that one of my favorite listeners to this show, Sophia, is not doing too well. Now, Sophia has called into this show before. She's also uh, written to me from time to time. She is on kidney dialysis. Now, Sophia is a nice lady. She is a big listener to this show, listens every day. She's active in the Facebook group. She's on topic in the Facebook group, which is more than I can say for many of you. If you want to join the Facebook group, uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And she had called a... uh, a, I guess a few months ago now, trying to get a kidney from somebody in our audience. And we do have a, uh, a very, very large listening audience. And so far, um, Sophia has, from what I can understand, not gotten a kidney. So I heard this week from some other listeners that she is not doing well. So she's having a rough week and hopefully things turn around for her. But I think um, her problems are not going to necessarily be helped unless we can get her a kidney. So I want to try and again to have one of you give her a kidney. And, um, you know, I'm not sure what, you know, what blood type she is or what kind of match that she would need to be. But if you email me um, and you want to give your kidney away, I'll put you in touch with her and you can you can make arrangements with her to see if you're a match and if you can give your, her kidney away. Now, I am a I'm an organ donor for when I die. All the organs are being given away. But I, I've been thinking maybe I should try and give one of my kidneys to Sophia. But, um, you know, I'm a little nervous about doing so. I have to be honest. And uh, I would much rather one of you do it than than me. Uh, so this way I still have a kidney in case my son needs one one day. That's the only hesitation that I have because, believe me, I would make any sacrifice in the world for any of our listeners. So, I, be, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more common, people needing all these kidneys. And I happen to be very close to two people that have given their kidneys away. When, when my friend Coach needed a liver transplant... I was going to give him a portion of my liver, but it turned out he needed a full liver, not just a portion of it. So um, my friend Danielle, who's a very, very close friend, a wonderful, wonderful person. I talk about her from time to time. And even when she drives me crazy, it's in a very, very positive way. She's a delightful person inside and out. She also happens to be married to another close friend of mine. And uh, I actually married them uh, on Leap Day, February 29th. So. She actually gave her kidney away, and she discussed the experience, and I'm hoping that you can hear her story and how rewarding this has been for her, and you'll want to give your kidney away, too. This is Danielle talking about her kidney experience. My name is Danielle Hoffman, and I am a proud living kidney donor. Four years ago, I was afforded the opportunity to donate my kidney to my coworker, Michael, who was dying of polycystic kidney disease. 
For me, the most fulfilling part of being a kidney donor uh, is being able to see how happy uh, his children were knowing that I was saving his life. He had young children. Um, one was the, about 10 years old, and the other was my daughter's age, which at the time was 15. And I just want to say that it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, throughout the last four years, I've connected with many other kidney donors through uh, Facebook groups as well as through the uh, National Kidney Foundation. Additionally, um, I would like to remind everyone that World Kidney Day this year is March 10th, and uh, you should uh, make some sort of a donation however you, uh, however you can, whether it is a blood donation or check in the box to be a living organ donor on your license we're just giving a few dollars or a, a wonderful thought or prayer to somebody in need. Have a great day. Bye. Now, um, I've known other people who have been uh, kidney recipients. Joel Giambra, who is, I think, running for governor this year. He's been the recipient of a kidney. I'm going to invite him on to talk about her, uh, his perspective. But so, so this way you hear it from both you know, the recipient's perspective and the donation's perspective. And, you know, um, I, I believe, unless I'm really misremembering, but John Katsimatidis, the owner of our radio station, I believe, was the recipient of a kidney transplant in 2010, I believe. And uh, my Uncle John, who's not literally my uncle, but I call him my uncle. He's just like my uncle. Uh, he's uh, my father's best friend, and they've been best friends since they were 10. He gave his kidney away as well to his brother-in-law. Hello, I'm John Torolosi, and I'm a kidney donor. I gave my extra kidney away eight years ago to my brother-in-law, Richie. And in doing so, I donated to more than just Richie. I donated to my sister, who still has her husband, to my two nephews, who still have their father, and to his grandchildren, who still have their poppy. He was on dialysis for almost a year, when we did the donation. And I say we because I include my wife Cecilia in that decision. Dialysis is not fun. It keeps you alive, but very taxing on the system. Dialysis and the lack of donors is the reason why there are so many people on the waiting list. There are currently in excess of 90,000 people on the active kidney waiting list. It turns out you don't really need two kidneys, and since it can come from a live donor, it only makes sense to do it. While it can be a scary proposition, giving away part of it, saving someone's life makes it all less scary and well worth it. The medical industry has really done a fantastic job improving the whole transplant process, and in many cases, pretty routine. Now, the concern one might have is what happens to the quality of your life after you give away a kidney. I found nothing was different. The quality of my life is the same as it was before I gave it away. The kidney you keep just take, picks up the slack and keeps you healthy. Giving a kidney is a little inconvenient, a couple of weeks at home to recover, but well worth it. Um, because I gave away my kidney to my brother-in-law, I now have him around and he'll have a longer and better quality of life. I'm really glad I did it and would have regretted it the rest of my life if I hadn't done it. Thanks for listening. So there you have my Uncle John, 
gave his kidney away to his brother-in-law. You have Danielle who gave her kidney away to her uh, to her coworker. And here's an opportunity for you to save one of your brethren, a fellow listener to this show. Now, I mean, look, this is a great way for you to get straight into heaven. All right. I mean, you know, you can go sinning like crazy. You know, you, you forget it. You don't have to recycle. You know, you can get a little crazy from time to time. And, you know, you save someone's life with a living kidney donation and you know you're you're still going to be okay in terms of the afterlife. So why not give Sophia a kidney? So if you want to give your kidney to her, uh, email me and I'll connect you with her. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. I have a lot of admiration for both Danielle and John. And uh, it's Danielle's birthday this week. She's actually doing a birthday fundraiser for the National Kidney Foundation. So if you're not up for giving your kidney away, maybe just make a donation to the National Kidney Foundation in uh, either Sophia's name, who's on dialysis trying to get a kidney, or in Danielle's name, who is using the fact that she was birthed 40 years ago to get some kidneys for other people. Meantime, I aired earlier, I said that uh, Barry Farber had stolen the line Um, keep asking questions from Tex McCrary. I misspoke or I misremembered. The line that he took from Tex McCrary was to be continued. That's my error, and I apologize to the memories of both Barry Farber and Tex McCrary. Uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to David in Yonkers. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. So uh, first about the kidney donation, you know, I would save my kidney for my family. What if I donate a kidney to a stranger and then somebody in my family? Well, that's exactly my hesitance at this point. Yeah, right. So uh, then about Matthew Broderick, uh, he was driving on the wrong side of the road. Yes, I I said that. No, you said he swerved. Oh, oh, oh. Well, he swerved onto the wrong side of the road. No, he was driving on the wrong side of the road. Oh well, that's that's not the that yeah. I hadn't I hadn't seen that aspect of the story. So I'll have to take yeah, your word for that, David. Over there, they drive on the left side, and he was driving the way they drive here. I right, see. The right side. I see. Yeah. Well, you know, at least he paid that hundred seventy-five dollar fine. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Joe is in Orange County. Hello, Joe. Hey, doing, Frank? My friend asked me to marry them. So I know you're a minister, right? Yes. And I was curious about, was it? I know it's not a big process to do it, but when you do do it, are you, can you do it in any state or you have to specify what state you're going to marry? Um, every state has, every state has their own rules and some states, some counties, even within certain states have their own rules. Where's your friend getting married? Okay, Pennsylvania. Ah, so I've never done a wedding in Pennsylvania. I would, um, I you, I would check the Universal Life Church website. They have information on the different rules in all the different states and whether the different states and the different communities within the states recognize uh, the Universal Life Church as a marrying entity. Okay, so so yourself, you're only 
certified in New York or a couple of states? Well, no, no, no. It's not. It's not. It's not like you get a different certification in each state. The way it works is, states decide what what churches they want to recognize. Now, most states do recognize the Universal Life Church, and most counties do. So if you go on to the Universal Life Church website, it'll give you the list of all the states and all the counties that recognize them as a marrying entity. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And and I got another question for you. Did you ever see Biloxi Blues with Matthew uh, Roderick? Yes, I like that picture. Okay, okay, that's a really funny picture. Because I know after he did all that stuff, you know, uh, he did that, he did uh, a bunch of show movies, and then he had that accident, he kind of stayed, he disappeared for a while, you know? Well, I mean, but he's been pretty consistently active, even, you know, since then. Joe, thanks for the call. And, um, but, uh, I mean, I, I think it was very telling that I didn't know anything about this Matthew Broderick incident. So, all right, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a couple of minutes. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, now's the time. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Matthew Broderick having killed twice as many people as Alec Baldwin. It's, you know, not an easy thing. All right, uh, 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. Our final one for the week. One, two, three, four open lines if you want to be heard for 15 seconds. one 800 848 WABC, straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight, uh, and again, uh, we we do want to try and get a kidney for for Sarah. Um, excuse me for Sophia. And uh, my friend uh, Danielle informs me that uh, you never know if you'll end up being a match for your relative. And immediate relatives of donors go to the top of the line in New York. And Ellen emails me that there's a program called Pay It Forward, where you can donate a kidney to someone even if it's not the right match. And you could pay it forward, and your desired recipient can receive it. A lot of hospitals do it, and uh, we'll see. If you're interested in giving your kidney away, whether it's to Sophia or someone else, email me, and we'll try and we'll try and make it happen. Now, again, you 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 think of all the leeway. You immediately have the moral high ground in any argument once you've given a kidney away. I mean, you, I, I try to argue with Danielle because she's wrong most of the time, and then all she has to do is play that kidney card. Well, how, how are both of your kidneys doing? Done. The argument's over. Uh, 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Frankie is in Glendale. Hello. Good morning, Frank. 
I really miss listening to the Auto Lab radio show. 77 ABC has all kinds of quality radio programs except for a car show. I found it very interesting and uh, educational. I wish Mr. Castamatidis would consider adding the Auto Lab radio show to its Saturday morning lineup. Peter in Greenwich Village. Slavery as well as the Holocaust are examples of man's inhumanity to man. Whoopi, you said nothing wrong. It's just that you're black and you said it. Bye. Neil on Staten Island. Yeah, Frank, you better fill in for Wiener because you're going to need the extra money. It's costing so much to raise the kid. Thank you, that cucumber, Joe Biden. Joe in Ron Konkuma. Hey, Frank. Shout out to Frank from Glendale. I agree with him 100%. Get, we don't need Anthony Wiener on this radio program. Come on, Frank. He's a bum. Fred in Yonkers. Frank, I had to take the Rambler over to Meineke to get a new tailpipe. When they finished the job, the guy comes out and they threw a big party. He was going to retire. I asked him how he felt. He told me, exhausted. <laughs> Jimmy in Connecticut. Since the moron, since the moron, since Boris in Brighton Beach. Read the Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg on Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg. And Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Pierce, a criminal and a fraud, is sent an innocent New York City cop to prison. Sal in Brooklyn. So New York Mayor Eric Adams says that heroin is addictive as cheese. We better send Frank Moreno to rehab. Oh! Carol in New Jersey. A Frank kid couldn't be further from a moron. I, I'm seconding the motion. Uh, I mean, this idiot that keeps calling up saying that Sid is a moron all the time. He's brilliant. He's kind. He's caring. He's not a moron. Right, let's not get carried away here, Carol. Anthony is in Edison. Yes, good morning. How come uh, we, we got the uh, Bombers of the World Trade Center and Timothy McVeigh within days, and yet 13 months later, we don't have the guy in D.C. who left the pipe bombs at the RNC and the DNC. I think that's kind of strange. Uh, hey, uh, all right. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Anthony. All right. I think we'll slam the lid on things for today and the week. Coming up, the WABC Early News with Deb Valentine from 5 to 6. Sid Rosenberg is solo from 6 to 10. Uh, rumor has it that I will be appearing on that show in the 6 o'clock hour. So stay tuned to the 6 o'clock hour of that show. Uh, I may or may not be on it. I may or may not be napping at that point. I will be back Monday morning at 1 a.m. Uh, we will have Valentine's Day analysis. We will have big game analysis and a whole lot more. Email me, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. Frank Moreno, good day.